Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. from i am joining you from uh huddersfield uh chilly the north of england yes cool yeah i guess yesterday was joining us from like a beach in cape town yeah amazing chilly huddersfield is is great that's (laughs) it makes us feel less bad (laughs) yeah exactly it's appropriately dark and cold for us to not feel jealous oh yeah yeah really really Can you do us the honor of please introducing yourself to our dear listeners? Uh, My name is Matt Cahoon. Um, I am a writer and photographer from Yorkshire, UK. Uh, Recently wrote a book uh, called Egress on Morning Melancholia Mark Fisher and edited a collection of um, Mark's final lectures, both for repeater books. Wonderful. I'm really grateful that you did that. I wonder, so... How should we best approach this? Because, you know, my understanding is that you have really taken on um, the task of, you know, going through and contextualizing a lot of Mark's work. I'm calling him Mark like I know him. I don't actually know him. (laughs) A lot of Mark Fisher's work. I think when you spend a lot of time with someone's writing and ideas, it starts to feel... Like you do know them. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And also the fact that like, you know, uh, we were going through the the, the lectures um, today uh, from the Post-Capitalist Desire book. Um, and yeah, it's true. It is really unusual that, that at least for me, just speaking for myself, it, feel, it does feel like I have a relationship with the guy. Um, also the way that the book is formatted, but we'll get into that, yeah. I think, a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I just want to be, be. You've really t- taken on taken on this taken on this task, and I'm really really grateful that you've done that. I mean, would you mind giving us a bit of a bit of a, a, a personal history of you know of of your own work and and your work uh, your work with Mark Fisher? Yeah, um, I suppose the first thing is that I think that that's that's certainly how I feel like I am perceived these days, and it's not inaccurate. But it wasn't really my yeah. intention to have done that work in a way. It just sort of yeah. happened. Um, I was an, initially a, a student at um, Goldsmiths University of London from 2016 to 2017. I was a master's student and I went to uh, Goldsmiths initially to to be taught by Mark and his colleague, Koji Weshin. Um mm-hmm. We were running at that time a, a course in oral and visual cultures. And um, I was initially before then sort of jobbing as a music photographer, but mm-hmm. sort of more unsuccessfully, uh, but enjoyed that kind of the relationship between sound and uh, sound and vision that they were kind of going for. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, joined the university in 2016, uh, just when that course was dissolved and became something else. Um, but Mark <laughs> and Kojo were still there. So, you know, it was, it was great. And uh, yeah, and it was, uh, it was a really amazing time, but unfortunately, um, in January of 2017, Mark unfortunately passed away. And um, the the experience 
that experience for so many of us at the university, what felt like everybody really was was a massive shock. Yeah. Um, but there was something that I think it was it was precisely Mark's relationship to that institution and to his students that made us kind of come together. And I think it's I mean it's interesting that you say that you know why I actually had this conversation the other day about why everyone does refer to Mark as Mark sort of quite informally. Yeah. yeah. Because I'd not really thought about that, and I remember sort of being pulled up on it before. Like, you know, maybe it's it's Fisher, right? That's kind of the formal rightly thing to do. But I think it says a lot about Mark's work actually, and how um, he has that quite personable approach. You kind of can even that's very true of the lectures I think that have just come out or are coming out physically in January. But um, I think that's true of a lot of his work that you you kind of do feel like you're having a conversation with him over a pint or something um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that was yeah totally the experience that we all hadn't really treasured so I think once Mark after Mark had died then there was this whole new Mark that kind of emerged um sort of pieced together from all people's different experiences but I think for a lot of us at Goldsmiths there was this sense that our Mark that we knew in the classroom wasn't quite there um so yeah, initially I just started, I just started writing my book Egress. It was actually my master dissertation because that in itself was kind of a weird project to undertake. Um, mm-hmm. But at, in that at that time, in that year, in that context, having been sort of you know I was, I was there and I had to write a dissertation on something, and I didn't really know what else I wanted to write about. I just thought I'd write about what happened in that moment, and then kept writing it after I graduated, and and it became this book and. Um, yeah, the post-capitalist desire lectures sort of felt like the uh, there was something missing from that project, and I think it was partly that people didn't weren't as aware of that. I was going to say version of Mark, but that aspect of Mark's work um, then I felt was you know that was kind of obvious to the rest of us. So putting these lectures out feels like a way to, in a way, plug that gap and sort of just share that Mark that we really loved with everybody else. Yeah, it's really this kind of almost personal um, experience that one has when reading the lectures because, you know, for the, for the listeners who probably haven't had access to this yet, it's a collection of lectures from the classroom. Yep. So you kind of, it's really, in, I mean, I've never read anything like quite like this um, where, you know, it's, you, you can hear the voices of the students, obviously anonymized. And then Mark's uh, answers to those questions and you see a kind of syllabus layout and you almost feel like you're a kind of like fly on the wall in this class. It's a really special approach that and it also, I think, does um, honor to this idea that you were talking about, about how um, approachable his ideas are, even though, you know, his references are very, you know, complicated, (laughs) um, critical thinkers and philosophers, he's able to kind of communicate it in such a kind of like a teacher's way, you know, and you kind of get that through this document as well. Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff that he's dealing with is is pretty heavy. And a lot of it's quite weird. But there's, I think that's one of the my favorite things about it in a way is that he starts talking about like, um, Gregory Lukash, for instance, and just talking about Mm -hmm. this very difficult, I think he sort of says it's, it's, uh, was it? deep cooked in Hegel, but fundamentally it's (laughs) trippy. And that's kind of the fun of it. Once you understand it as just being like this psychedelic project that, that the language, that kind of overly academic language is kind of like, like reading it like some like Burroughs book or something, this kind of cut up strange alternate Mm -hmm. perspective on the world. 
there's something a lot more exciting about it than, than just this sort of quite penetrable text. It becomes something else. And yeah, I think he had a real talent for allowing people to see things in other ways like that, especially, yeah, that kind of weird philosophy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I I really appreciate in the lecture book, for example, there's also so many like mundanities that could have been cut out where you have students says something along the lines of, oh yeah, I find it quite hard. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, in a, it's it's a very unfiltered, it's a very unfiltered, literally fly on the wall experience. And I think that the, for me, there's something I'm, I'm trying to make a bigger point here, but like, it's kind of funny. So although I don't know Mark, for example, I do know quite well Robin Mackay from uh, Urbanomic, right? Who has presented, as far as I was aware, like presented quite often with Mark, like also has like the CCRU background. Um, and I remember having a chat with Robin one time and it was something along the lines of like, just how like unusual it is, like structuring the process of like intellectual thought into a book that like you cross through this like weird threshold where you go from this act of like intellectualizing or like being intellectual into formalizing something into a text that fundamentally will go way further than, you know, that's kind of out of your, out of your hands, you know? Um, and I remember after like, you know, years, for example, of reading K-Punk, having that kind of experience also when capitalist realism came out, that it was like, okay, so you have like Mark, as we're colloquially referring to him here, who is the, the person who exists between these different fields who manages to find a way to like, informally but with no no shortage of rigor like just enliven these these kind of spaces between let's say dance music culture and philosophy or critical theory or whatever and then you have mark fisher who is the you know the 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 leftist kind of theorist who releases capitalist realism that gets referred to probably uh, uh, by more people than than whoever you know read k-punk or 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 there's some kind of disconnect there. And there's something I really like about this lecture series, the way it's been put together, because to me, it like, it conveys that process of like doing intellectual stuff, you know, where it's like, you'll like read certain threads and it's like, he's like going off. And then the student will be like, can you repeat that? And then he's like, no, I don't, I don't remember what I just said, you know? And it's like, that to me is like in, in, in kind of a nutshell, almost like what is so hypnotic and romantic about, not just actually Mark's work, but like that entire period of like, you know, blog, blog theory. And like, you know, that encapsulates it for me perfectly. And I think, and it's actually like, you know, uh, uh, one of the reasons I got inspired to like, to, 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 to start thinking about this stuff in, 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 in the first place. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's the one thing I always think of is there's, there's a series of K-punk posts that Mark wrote just about the joy of being a, of, of being a fan um, yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it's it's that's just something that carries through. I think all everything that he does, not not just when he's writing about music, but also about philosophy or anything else. It's like his his attachment to a lot of whether it's yeah pop culture or academia. He has that just that same passion. That kind of it's it's like a nerdiness that is a sort of a deeper level of engagement that you can have with you know it could be just like your favorite artist discography. And you and just the, yep. your sort of natural obsession, where you just end up absorbing all that information, applying that kind of approach to something like Marxism is kind of maybe something a bit more 
uh, it, it has that, I guess for other people, it has a, a different kind of weight to it. But for Mark, I don't think it did. Yeah. And I think that's maybe yeah. that that comes across. But I think oh, even yeah. for the lectures, there's that sense that um, it's, I think we all have that experience where you're really passionate about something that maybe isn't shared by like a friend or loved one. And you're like, you have to listen to this. You have to watch this. It's so good. And maybe yeah. you can put them off a bit. And it's kind of like, that's, that's what Mark's kind of doing in those lectures. He's, he's act, you know, it's like, he's actively convincing people. It's not like, you no, know, this isn't a book and this book is published. So you sort of somehow obliged to take it seriously. Here's yeah, the students yeah. who don't really have that. I mean, some of them might not know Mark for, for his writing. They're just there to take his course. Um, yeah, yeah, and that was certainly true. I think from some people who I've spoken to since, who showed up to Goldsmiths because of its reputation, but didn't know what who Mark was, but took his class anyway, and sort of mm-hmm. have that sense of like, oh yeah, he like brought me to the other side or something, just from like being that passionate about his subject. Can we back up a little bit because we've already mentioned K-punk a couple times, and I don't know if the listeners necessarily familiar with that. So I would love it if you could give us a little primer on the CCRU and K-punk has blog. Yeah, like who who are we talking about here? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is this community for, for of those people? who don't? Yeah, yeah, who didn't spend the last like. <laughs> 10, 12 years in Scotland. Obsessing, of course. Right, well, that's it, right? You're just immediately, like, involved in this whole, like, universe thing. It's not as pop cultural as maybe it feels, but... um, Totally. Yeah. uh, I guess, yeah, start with the the CCIU is the the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit, which was a sort of um, a strange band of students and lecturers at the University of Warwick in the 1990s and early 2000s. That um, was made up of, I think, I suppose its main figureheads were the now very infamous Nick Land, but also Sadie Plant, who um, ran a similar sort of venture at the University of Birmingham, I think, that was like a, a sort of cultural studies para-academic offshoot. And yeah, part of the CCIU students at that time, you had Mark Fisher, Robin Mackay, um, Steve Goodman, aka Code Nine, um, it was Ian Hamilton Grant, I think, lots of various different people um, and other affiliates, I think, that, that their main thing was not just that they were this research group within the university, but actively tried to sort of spread their reach beyond that institution, um, mm-hmm. primarily online. So they had their website at ccru.net where they shared a lot of writings that were kind of collectively produced under pseudonyms. And in that way, they ended up connecting with there was Kojo Eshin on the one hand, who I think was a fan of theirs and writing something for their website. There was also people like Simon Reynolds, who became interested in around that time too. Um, and the, the vast network that is the CCIU and its affiliates is kind of insane. I think now looking back, it's so sprawling. Um, but that network then, the, the CCIU was disbanded um, in part because I don't think you could get away with that kind of activity these days, never mind for very long back in the 2000s. But that network just moved into a wider blogosphere. Um, yeah. And yeah, K-Punk was Mark's pseudonym slash yeah, uh, blog header name thing, uh, <laughs> entity, I don't know, whatever his possessive demon or whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> all, probably all of the above. And uh, yeah, it became like, I think, it was just, I think Simon Reynolds described it as a kind of one-man magazine, which yeah. is, um, way of summarizing its vibe, I think, just a space for Mark to 
share whatever he was thinking about, um, whether that's about music or philosophy or politics, sometimes all of that at once. And yeah, he gained a, a lot, a lot along with another, a, many other people sort of that were having conversations at that time gained a certain amount of traction. And uh, I think eventually ended up setting up Zero Books with fellow friend from university, Tarek Goddard, which later became Repeater Books. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think it was that Tarek said that Zero was basically started because he believed that Mark should be published. He needed a space to, he deserved a yeah. space to have his voice heard that wasn't just his own sort of website. So they mm-hmm. put out Capitalist Realism in 2009 and it became this, yeah, quite surprising bestseller. Um, yeah. And I guess the rest is history in a way. Uh, there's plenty more that Mark was sort of involved in from that. Um and I guess that's, you could talk for hours, I guess, about all these various different projects, but that's partly the attraction, I think, to what he was doing. He was as much involved in cultural production as he was cultural studies. And that kind of synthesis, I think, has inspired many people since me, especially, and I think a lot of other people that are still engaged with his work and, and with a lot of sort of online culture in general. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to keep that sort of momentum and activity alive. And his blog is still available online, and we will link to that in the show notes, right? It's still all up. Yeah, I think it's, it's. I think there's some of them are getting quite old now. I think there's the very old version. It's like kpunk.abstractdynamics.org or something complicated. Mm-hmm. That's still live. I think there's actually a kpunk.org that's maybe started to go down more recently, which has been a bit of a worry yeah. for me personally. But um, yeah, yeah, it's and most of it's still around anyway. Yeah, so it's definitely out there for fresh spelunking i remember when capitalist realism came out in 2009 we picked it up at a museum bookstore did we do you remember in la oh, in LA, yeah for sure which yeah. is i mean it just shows with like the kind of interesting distribution network that he was in conversation with and a part of yeah no it's pretty wild i mean like the but it's also i, I mean it also predates a little bit like it's funny how like we talk a lot on this podcast about you know the kind of the great flattening that happened from like 2010 to 2020 Right. Where like, you know, there and don't get me wrong, there, there's positives and negatives to this, but like all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, you know, you you could see the like tiny release reviewed next to Beyonce on the pitchfork page. And that was like a thing in like 2011, 2012, and it was like, wow, like the internet is flattening everything. But it's kind of funny that like K Punk in a sense was also like that great flattening where you're like, oh, actually i guess the speed at which you could write uh, you could blog through these like blogging platforms it was kind of very stream of consciousness where you're like okay like you're thinking about riots in tottenham and you're thinking about this new album that came out and you're smashing those together in real time and you might update it in six hours or something if a new thought comes to mind yeah um and that felt very new, like pre-Twitter, really, or any mm-hmm. of this kind of stuff. Like that felt very, very new and very inspiring in this way that maybe now in retrospect is like a bit, I don't know, like a bit alien. You know what I mean? Because like now you're quite used to stream of consciousness. You're quite used to seeing these things smashed together on the same feed or whatever. But like in actuality at the time, it was like a very distinct 
uh, a very distinct way of following media sufficient to the point whereby you're like, oh, okay, like exactly. It's like a one man magazine. Like I can follow this and like kind of at the time we were living in Oakland, I think when I first started reading it mm-hmm. um, and I was like, okay, I kind of know everything, everything I want to know about London basically just from checking this out. Cause it's like all the most interesting music, all the most interesting art, all the most interesting film, like all the links to all the other interesting people that are doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's all this theory in there to like contextualize it, which of course is like, yeah, wonderful. I don't know. Yeah, And we also made a lot of friends through interest in this work. I mean, it was also kind yeah, of a great 100%. way to kind of like filter through and find people. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, like Reza, for example, who's like, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, no. Uh, um, well, that's a great, that's a great primer. I mean, I guess in advance, because it would be really good. I mean, the actual material in these lectures, there's a lot there. And, and before we get to that, can you just pause for a second? Yeah. I do want, because it's called K-punk, I do want to talk about this word punk for a minute. Sure. Because I feel like it's like a very, um, uh, there's a lot of baggage around that word. And I feel like he had such a deliberate approach to the idea of the punk. And it was more, he was more interested in the idea of the post-punk rather than the kind of punk. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Can you just explain that a little bit? Because I feel like that's an interesting and important distinction yeah. that kind of carries forward to the work. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I suppose that. Yeah, any, any, I think any anyone that's read K-punk for any any sort of length of time would find that yeah, Mark was really passionate about post-punk as a kind of period. Um, in one sense, because it was his time, it was like his sort of formative years. But I think also it's maybe the the, the problem of post-punk, like the problem that's kind of in the name that punk was sort of seen culturally as this as this explosion of newness and refusal um that maybe didn't quite deliver on its promises and was maybe a little Mm -hmm. bit too reactionary in some ways to 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 considering what was maybe needed at that time politically um which i guess is kind of a that's a considerable point to unload but i guess the 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 point i think for mark was that i think he writes somewhere that the k of k-punk was always around sort of cyber but not necessarily in that kind of genre trope of cyberpunk it was more just like what is it to be punk? Because um, I guess that's what post-punk is, right? What is it to be punk after punk? Or what mm-hmm. is it to be punk after the dawn of the internet? Um, and I guess it's that what what's buried in there maybe is this question around what it is to, what is the new? What counts as new? What counts as kind of a radical imposition within the present or the status quo? Um, and how does that sort of wave, the crest of that wave of newness continue into the future? Um, without sort of being succumbing to a kind of um, self-undermining reaction. Um, yeah. And I guess Mark was always the, I think that maybe the K of, the K, K-punk as a sort of term is like a lot of Mark's um, phrases and neologisms in a way, because I guess that, uh, I mean, acid communism was sort of to be Mark's last book and it was a phrase that kind of gathered a lot of attention, especially after his death, but in a way that's quite, provocative it doesn't really have a settled meaning and i guess k-punk's kind of similar um it's kind of lack of certainty reflects maybe a lack of certainty that was all around us but which mark nevertheless wanted to hold on to um in a way to sort of unsettle um what is familiar what is uh considered to be a given or a norm whether that's capitalism or cultural circumstances and yeah i guess it becomes this kind of capstone under which he just would yeah try and constantly disrupt things um so in a way i guess that's the 
it's it's almost an unanswerable question because it's the what is what is k-punk and what k-punk's kind of for i guess for him especially was this shifting it, it yeah it was it was shifting and it always was to continue shifting and i think that that is quite uh it doesn't that doesn't maybe sound that radical a proposal but i think for someone especially in his position in academia where you can have someone that it's very common now to have people that are kind of get to that that level of rain, name recognition that he has that then become fixated on a singular idea and kind of geek out in existence talking about yeah. capitalism realism forever and mark didn't do that he moved on would abandon mm-hmm. and pick up new things. I guess that's partly also his sort of K-punk vibe. To always, that's, I mean, the, the post-punk uh, mantra, I think, that Simon Reynolds puts it, which is to rip it up and start again. And despite having this, a lot of consistency within Mark's thought, but in terms of how he would present himself, he was always looking for new ways to do that. I, I love that. I really, especially because I feel like so much of the punk kind of ripping it up I feel like is this kind of first instinct, but then the kind of building something new is something that people often <laughs> lose steam before they do. And and I feel like that's what this post-punk thing kind of really encapsulates is it's like you knock down the wall and then you build something new. What is that new thing? You have to figure out what that desire is and we'll get into that. But that's that's what resonates so much with me about this is that it's kind of moves, moves past the kind of like teenage um, immediate kind of tearing up and, st- and and takes that next leap, which is a leap of faith and requires like an earnest kind of dealing with the subject and is is kind of a scary space to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's also, I, I think it also speaks in the sense to um, when you said, when you mentioned earlier of like his being a fan, um, not in a pejorative sense, right? Like his being like an ab- admirer of intellects, I think that also requires a degree. And I mean, I think just intellectualism just generally kind of necessitates a degree of flexibility and curiosity that, you know, because as you say, I mean, it is quite true. I mean, I find this often, I mean, the only way I can, I can relate to this in a different, in a different kind of time, I guess, is like through Twitter or something like that, where you're like, okay, like weirdly in the intervening years, it seems like many of these ideas of kind of, spread out into the wider world some of which in a in a heavily distorted fashion um and the one thing i kind of long for about that spirit of like okay like for everything that you for every amount of weight that you put behind tearing something down you can also uh be prepared to replace it with something constructive you know i have like a a real uh, romantic association with that kind of spirit as opposed to for example you know going on twitter and being beaten over the head because, you know, I didn't read the Grundrisse last week or whatever, you know, but this kind of attitude of this, this kind of like, which is a very kind of like cliche attitude of this dusty lefty who is, you know, always just looking to sneer and snark at at, at latest developments because, you know, nothing, it turns out that nothing in the world is unproblematic. Right. Um, But, but yeah, but this kind of like this intellectual, the process of intellectualization where you're like, okay, like I'm excited about ideas I'm excited to encounter new things. I'm excited. I'm not afraid, in a sense, to 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 combine novel things and and see what sticks and see you know see where these see where these paths go. There's a certain freedom and fluidity to that 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 again speaks to me of like a, a of of genuine passion and curiosity um, versus some kind of like you know a desire for like ideological perfection or mm-hmm. you know uh, to create the most fortified idea possible out of 
fundamentally out of fear, right? Uh, fundamentally out of a, a fear or an uncertainty or a doubt or, a, or an insecurity um, or an insecurity that, you know, that putting ideas out in the world obviously leaves you vulnerable, you know? And, and so, yeah, so I, I yeah, that, that was what I was thinking, but I, I, mean, <laughs> I, didn't know, but I didn't know how to contribute it in a way that, well, you know. Well, you did, you contributed, okay, it's good. Because yeah. <laughs> I guess that's like the, it's like the generative paradox of post-punk, like, because I guess that punk, yeah, is that, that adolescent kind of militant cynicism maybe where, you know, the, yeah, yeah, I know everything uh, that kind of, well, you know, that, yeah, that, that all knowing there's that kind of cultural benevolence that it kind of, yeah, sneers down upon. And at that time that's probably really radical, but then it's like, that's the, it's as if that sort of prefigures this postmodern moment that we're in this kind of Nietzsche's last man who looks down upon everything and is just, just sees no kind of use for it. And there's something to, yeah. There's something quite well. Again, it's it's quite trippy, really, when you think about it. That that you can have that moment and then sort of climb down from there, as if you start from this all-knowing perspective, and then and then you suggest, well, okay, maybe there's some there's some gaps here that I need to plug. And I guess that's like a yeah. universal experience as far as yeah, like adolescence goes. But to suggest that that never ends culturally, I think is really interesting mm-hmm. and pushes for. Um, because I guess that's it's it's quite it, it's it's it that's kind of the problem that's never gone away sort of in the 21st century and that Marx sort of fought both sides for in a way he's got like one of his more famous sort of topics of interest being hauntology the suggestion that nothing is new and we're kind of just stuck in this period of retrospection and pastiche and then there's mm-hmm. the kind of this other side where he talks about accelerationism and the aesthetics of accelerationism and this kind of militant newness. But really, that I think what we're what everyone's kind of ends up combating and struggling with in some regard, I think at the in our present moment, is balancing those two things out. Where you can have, you know, there's you can be nostalgic for a time that you that you know sort of formative, it was formative and meant a lot to you. But how do you not get stuck there and move on to something else? And how do you like move on to something new without you know forgetting all the lessons that you've taken along the way? And it's yep. like that sort of polarization that I think in many ways people would maybe blame Mark for in in this sort of popular understanding of how his work sort of developed. But I think actually his, to take his whole trajectory, uh, sort of from a, to look at it from a distance, I think he, it was precisely him wrestling with that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, how to make that a positive force in the world rather than, yeah, this, that falling into that kind of reactive sniping persona that we're all kind of capable of, especially given the platforms yeah. that we're told to engage with each other on. Yeah. In your foreword where you're speaking about hauntology, um, you use a phrase called, um, or you write, the cul-de-sac of passivity, <laughs> which I love because one of my favorite phrases is aesthetic cul-de-sac. Right. <laughs> and they're kind of sister, I guess, phrases. In your passage, you're talking about the... Uh, you're comparing the glasses of um, the Beatles to uh, Liam Gallagher. <laughs> Anyways, but it's yeah, I it's, just wanted- well, it's a real problem though because I remember there was something like that. Really, um, it's it's interesting because that's it's almost like that observation's more associated with this kind of highfalutin art world talk. Because I remember there was this essay years ago, and maybe even was like a Jerry Saltz essay that ended up causing some controversy where he talked about like zombie abstraction and how yeah, like yeah. abstract expressionism kind of becomes this, it's just now like Ikea 
uh, I don't know, like showroom <laughs> decoration. Zombie formalism. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, and, 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 but that's kind of pervasive, right? And it's, yeah, whether that's, it's kind of everywhere, but I think there's something in a way that's like, the, there's a certain vigilance regarding it that, I guess, yeah, it's part of that same problem. It's, it's a, having, being vigilant of that, it makes you very, it's very easy to be cynical about it, but. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, okay, once we've, once we've sort of passed through that sort of awareness and that cynical awareness, then what's next? And that's kind of like, yeah, as you sort of said, it's, it's not forgetting that there is a next step beyond that. For, for the purpose of, uh, did we actually end up kind of defining capitalist realism? Oh, not really. Maybe we should do that. Yeah. I, I think it might, it might be useful for those listening, if only for the fact that it's also something that I'd like to talk to you about in relation to um, kind of, you know, in the game of telephone, the the subtle erosion of the the, of the original yeah the original <laughs> intention of the word. I have something to say on that, but maybe it'll be like kind of interesting to 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 just define it. And Matt, I trust you to do this better than better than, than we could. <laughs> but but for those listening, you know, because it because it is a term that you will see. I mean, it's true with it, crazy frequency yeah, out yeah. in the world. I it mean, has it really is of its own. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the best. The best way to define it is to still go back to this phrase seemingly without origin that Mark uses in the start of the book where he says that it's easy to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I guess that gets, I guess maybe the point that you will, will come on to is that, that using that as a kind of visual metaphor that we, that, that, that you know, drawing on the fact that we have all of these uh, cultural examples of apocalyptia and post-apocalyptia, um, mm-hmm. And in so many of those, capitalism is still sort of this functioning entity that we just, everything else can end, but not that. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess that that's, you know, the, 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 to, to boil it right down and kind of get rid of that sort of, that fog of, of cultural representation, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a phrase that's pointing to a limiting of consciousness um, mm-hmm. and not just imagination. I think maybe there's like a, there's a finer line to draw there which is that it's not just that we can't imagine these things, but we're kind of, um, that the, there is the capitalism as a socioeconomic system precisely uh, dissuades us and dampens the potential for thinking about other possibilities, other alternatives to the world that we live in. Um, so it's kind of like capitalist realism is this sort of conscious, this scaffolding around consciousness that, um, that, can be, you know, yeah, dismantled. But how to do that, I guess, was the project that Mark sort of went on to, to explore after that initial book. And he had plenty to say on it. But yeah, the, we kind of, it's often the case that Mark's work kind of gets stuck there because it is mm-hmm. so evocative. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a, I mean, my, my commentary on it, or at least my, like, the thing I wanted to say on it is like, it kind of falls into, in my mind, I mean, not to, bifurcate these things necessarily but like what we were talking about earlier about like the process of like intellectualizing and then you know kind of terms that just these kind of like dead terms that are there to be picked up and like used as cudgels yes you know and it's funny in a sense how like you know one of the great misunderstandings at least from my understanding of mark's work right is that you have someone there who can come up with a, a, a fairly profound statement, right? It's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. And then also contribute you know, a great deal to this idea of ontology or kind of being stuck in infinite loops. I mean, like 
uh, also, I mean, which I'm sure we'll talk about because it, it pertains also to your book very heavily, like uh, produces these beautiful and sometimes actually very, uh, very kind of dark, like uh, uh, writings on melancholia and, and, and depression and mental health, right? But that, you know, capitalist realism in and of itself doesn't preclude him also being somewhat optimistic, actually more optimistic than most, than most I know when thinking about, you know, the numerous different avenues that we might take um, to make the world better in all kinds of different ways. Right. Um, and it's funny to me that, you know, so for example, we, we, we have a friend, um, Evgeny, Evgeny Morozov, who has been very critical in the realm of realms of technology. And he wrote a book that, that raised the specter of this idea of solutionism, right? In some ways, there's kind of some parallels, I think, to the capitalist realism in, 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 in much the way that like solutionism, as Evgeny would put it, is uh, this idea that, you know, all problems in the world must fundamentally be solved by particular kinds of technology. And those particular kind of technology technologies happen to involve markets and, and you know, these kind of things. They're designed with a specific ideology and with coming a specific- from a specific part of the world like Silicon Valley. and Exactly. Yeah. Um, but over time, and he was actually tweeting about this a couple of weeks ago, solutionism has become for people, you know, further down the telephone line, a cudgel by which to criticize anyone who wants to use technology for anything. Right. Right. Or has an actual solution to a problem. Yeah, exactly. I've heard that before where it's like, you want to solve something? Well, that sounds very solutionist. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a a similar way in in a realm with like, uh, of like capitalist realism, right? Where like some of the, when I was, you know, thumbing through the, the lectures earlier, like, you know, there's some scenarios there where, you know, Mark and, and and students there are grappling with this kind of contradiction of like, okay, well, how you know, you know, we want to try and push through to 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 reach a post capitalism or something along those lines, right? But like, how do we do that in a way where we keep our hands clean when we're also simultaneously aware that you know, uh, capital and uh, and the societies that we live in, I mean, like, produces the desires that we have, and the really great example that that is brought up is this politician. Who I can't remember. It's a UK politician who criticizes Occupy um, people who are participating in Occupy for having iPhones and drinking Starbucks coffee. Yeah, Louise Mensch. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Mensch, of course, her last name's Mensch. <laughs> yeah, and it's also this classic kind of like Twitter response where it's like the kind of like um, uh, what would you call it? Like the kind of surf. Who is like? Oh, oh! You want to improve society somewhat? How yeah. interesting! Yeah, <laughs> you, you know yeah. <laughs> I love that yeah. image. No, but it's true. But but it's just this kind of contradiction where it's like, okay, like I have only lived in a capitalist society, and you know, I often refer, for example, to my own students when we talk about stuff like this. I don't know if you're familiar with the scholar Branko Milanovic. I'm not. No, he's a he's a, amazing. He's like a, a Serbian. Um, uh, he's kind of like an authority on like stratification and inequality. Uh, and you know, he's, he's one of those kind of like, he, you wouldn't say he was like a theorist. He's kind of like an economic, an economist basically mm. who like consults at a very high level. And he released a book a year or two ago. I forget the name of it, but, but his basic thesis was being like, look, like capitalism is everywhere. He's like, I've now determined basically that Every, almost every society in the world basically works under a capitalist system. You know, this feels like a, a moment worth worthy of writing a book about. Like, how do we, you know, uh, what what does that mean? And so, you know, so often with this kind of, uh, uh, the, the, I, I find that uh, in contrast to what I understand Marx's curiosity and fluidity and kind of intellectual range um, to be, this term capitalist realism can often be used as a cudgel to say, 
oh well you know you're not you're not proposing uh, perfect communism tomorrow ergo you are a capitalist realist um and and your ideas are you know are are, are you know are tarred or, or, or whatnot right it's like classic unless, straw man well yeah exactly uh, 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 and so i i wanted to i wanted to raise that because it is important to like get to actually what he was what he was talking about and also to kind of yeah give people permission to to scoff when that term is used uh, uh when that term is used too liberally yeah absolutely i guess that's the point of this when when I was saying before about the capitalist realism being this kind of structure of consciousness, I guess that's partly the the reason for making that distinction is that like you you can't be a capitalist realist like, uh, like, <laughs> like intentionally. It is just it's, it's, like, it's like saying like it's it's as much saying that you know you you because you've maybe sold something on eBay, you're a capitalist. So you 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 like the, it's it's fundamentally guilty. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> no, it's like the, the very fact that you and get yeah, it's precisely that you live in you want to improve society somewhat, but live in a society. It's like <laughs> um, yeah, it's just not it's not how the term works. It's kind of similar, but it's but that's the something that runs through all of Marx's work too. It's the because ontology is used the same way. Like you sort of see someone that will say like, oh, I really love the Arctic monkeys. And like, oh, you hauntologist. And it's like, well, no, you can't be a hauntologist. <laughs> it's just like this, it's this structure of feeling. I guess that's like the, the Raymond Williams would sort of suggest it. But it's, you know, it's st- these structures of feeling are things that we just all live in. And to have yeah. this sense that you're somehow a- above it is kind of part <laughs> of the problem at the same time, yeah. right? That you, because it's, it's the fact that, I guess in a way, it, it's precisely putting the, 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 the difference between something being that kind of structure is that it's not an individual responsibility. So you can't yeah. point to individuals and say, you're not do, doing, doing enough to fix that because that's precisely the sort of capitalist argumentation for, you know, keeping people, for reducing people's own like sense of their own agency. Um, mm-hmm. Say you're not doing enough as an individual whilst being aware that as an individual, you can't do anything. Um, and it's kind of that like, it's something that I've been trying to write about a lot recently, actually, because it's kind of similar to, um, like, accelerationism is kind of the other strand that Mark was very well known for writing about, but is now maybe more controversial than it's ever been, because it's kind of become initially was this term that was, uh, I mean, broad, it's never quite agreed upon, but I guess the broad thrust of it in the initial blogosphere was, you know, precisely about that push for generating the new. And now yeah. you come to sort of, 20, what is it? Well, there was the, the, the Christchurch shootings in New Zealand where the, the, the shooter uses that word in his manifesto. And you kind of have this push for newness that's now wholly tied to, you know, as a byword for the most reactionary forces in society. Yeah, and that doesn't yeah. sort of, that's not to, to say that isn't to salvage an original accelerationism from some sort of yeah. like resistance. But actually, you know, understanding that movement, I think, is really important because it's part of. It's it's part it's 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 as if that like accelerationism has fallen victim to the very process it wanted to describe. That yeah. capitalism has that sense where you know, like Marx's argument would be that capitalism produces things um, that you know produce glimmers of other worlds. So the most obvious example maybe being that post-Fordism you have the rise of automation and that that produces glimmers in our imaginations of a world without work. So then mm-hmm. capitalists themselves have to kind of restrict the potentials of their own innovations. Yep. And it's as if that, you know, capitalism, I think Mark put it in a really, it, it's quite, the syntax of this sentence is really weird. I can never remember it, but it's something like, you know, that it's um, capitalism produces things that it can't then, obst- it has to then obstruct for itself. 
Mm-hmm. But the same is true of critiques of capitalism. So mm-hmm. it's not just so, you know, to, and this is true of anything that Marcus sort of writes about, that you have this, this thought that is initially quite radical or maybe evocative and, and, and just, you know, catches people's attentions and, and, and produces new kinds of thinking about where we are and where we might be going. And sort of through that same process of, you know, that, that, that thought in itself produces kind of contradictions that, you know, then that thought has to try and smother yeah, and we can't do that. It's it's we we I yep. think we struggle to do that. But in a way, what does this is somewhat like backwards compliment in there that if we can actually figure out, you know, this happens so many so often to critiques of capitalism. Surely there's some like silver lining there that shows that you know this this thing, these processes can thwart what they come out of, as if to say that maybe that's maybe proof of concept at least that capitalism c- could potentially you know undermine itself to the point that we move on to something new which Mark did all the time, right? He sort of had these suggestions then through cynicism or misunderstanding or, yeah, that game of telephone, they kind of undermine themselves. So he rips it up and starts again and moves on to the new thing. And keeping up that pressure was hugely important, I think, for actually the movement of his thinking. I know, I was just, I mean, I might even cut this out because I don't even know whether it's coherent, but but just just on that thread of like, you know, producing innovations that eventually will smother themselves, like, I feel like that might actually be accurate. I mean, with like the kind of Landian fetishism of like of of China, for example, yeah, and like increasingly also seeing, for example, the most long in the tooth like venture capitalists amongst Silicon Valley, like increasingly pushing towards like a state capitalist model, right? Increasingly <laughs> fetishizing like the Chinese state capitalist model. It's really strange. Like I was listening to well, like Well, I mean, a- who's benefited more from the federal stimulus in the United States in the last year? It's tech stocks. Yeah. Well, 100%. That's, well that's the thing, and it's it's one of these really weird ones where like I was listening to a um you know, I was reading I don't know I don't, have you read the um the People's Republic of Walmart? The uh the Lee Phillips and I forget the other the co author's name. Um, um Me too, but I have read it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, sorry, sorry, other person. In case you listen, um, <laughs> um, I'm gonna look it up. That's yeah. so mean. Other person. It's in my. I mean, I don't, I don't, it's just, it's just a, yeah. I always, uh, just, I always mix it up with with because it's. I guess it's similar to the uh, position that Frederick Jameson made, right? That's about that Walmart's utopia. I think was an essay that he wrote. And I always just, I always assume that he part wrote that, but he didn't. It's just a similar topic, and yeah. <laughs> okay, so People's Republic of Walmart, written by, co-authored by Leigh Phillips and Michal Rozvorsky. Um, sorry, Michal. Um, <laughs> but it was funny because around about the time that I was, I was reading that book, I also saw from like another dark corner of the feed uh, that uh, someone affiliated with Peter Thiel was putting together it was like some conference and that probably never ended up happening because of covid but there was some suggestion that there was going to be a conference for like heterodox thinkers coming out of silicon valley or whatever um and so i like <laughs> from that i ended up listening to a conversation with teal um and it was it was crazy because like the thesis of what uh phillips and Wazowski were saying was basically what peter teal was saying yeah where he's like actually like um i'm like like and teal who's like a very, very uh, successful, uh, very successful person who's like very thoughtful, whether or not you you agree with what he's saying, um, basically came to this conclusion where he was like, yeah, like competition is bad. Like you need to make the only company, like unless you're going for a monopoly, then you are, uh, then you're basically a loser, right? <laughs> uh, 
also, God, I hate that word. No, but, no, but that's, that, that's kind of his approach is he's just like every company should, should push for a monopoly. That's your job, right? As like a capitalist is to want to, to dominate your field. Um, but then on top of that, it, the other half of it is him complaining about um, stagnation and saying, you know, what we need is like war economies in which like planned economies in which, you know, you get this crazy b- boom of, of concentrated material innovation because Thiel himself is like a critic of the app economy and these kind of like frivolous bullshit apps, you know, the, the, the kind of like, he's like, I want, I think he says bits, not at, like, uh, atoms, not bits. Like he's like, I want material innovation. Like I want to live forever. It is very Promethean desire. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result, he ends up basically advocating for Chinese state cap commie, commie capitalism and he spends all his time being like, well, in China, they don't have this problem because you can you can coordinate everyone. You don't have a democracy. You can basically coordinate all your efforts toward the stuff. But to bring all this together to maybe <laughs> like a question for Matt. Oh, no, sorry. I, I, like, no, no, this is really interesting. I think it leads to somewhere where I was really wanting to go anyways is this idea of accelerationism, which has become this, as you uh, said, yeah, like yeah, really yeah. Co- controversial um, topic, term, whatever. And I just want to, if you could walk us through like how it started and then how it kind of like splits into left and right and how this kind of same little like seed can be picked up by people like Peter Thiel or someone like the, it, it, just, you know, you're talking about people with like very different kind of um, worldviews kind of coming to similar conclusions or having a similar kind of like seed idea that then kind of springs off into like wildly different directions. So if we could use accelerationism as a kind of way to talk about that, it would be great. Yeah. Um, I guess. The- <laughs> Sorry that we just talked at you. For no, 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 it's great. It, no, it's really great. I mean, I agree with all of it, and it's and I think it's it, it's it, this is actually a, this is a subject that I'm trying to write on at the moment um, and try and articulate that moment of beginning because it is I think there's a really interesting story there and in how that term sort of developed and then died because um, I think it is kind of dead and and there's not really a way yeah. there's, there's no there's no there's no point really in trying to resurrect it and yeah that whole thing of mm-hmm. the. Um, but the, but it, it's the the moment that it emerges comes from this suggestion made by this French philosopher called Alain Badiou, um, who, in the I think mid two thousands, well, I mean, it all emerges from that point of the the financial crash of two thousand seven two thousand eight, where you have people like Badiou, Schlagel, Zizek, all writing and talking very publicly and, and to you know to have maybe having more people listening to them than ever before that kind of peak of that moment where sort of there's of that kind of um public intellectuals of that era mm-hmm. and they're all talking about the sense that well that the kind of the, the tired old story that 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 no one could kind of agree on where to give you know if we, it's like it's kind of similar that we're seeing now in terms of like abolish the police or something where you have this kind of mm-hmm. radical call that says, no, these, these things aren't too big to fail. These institutions, whether that's, you know, economic or, or state. Um, yep. And we need to have, you know, it's, um, we, we, this, this habit that we've had since the sort of dawn of neoliberalism of like marginal reform isn't good enough. We have to have, you know, make strong impositions to bring about actual change, to bring about some sort of new in whatever context yep. that might be. And Badiou's kind of part of that. He's kind of this, at least at that time, is this sort of old school communist, Maoist even, who's sort of talking about um, a new uh, philosophy of militancy that's sort mm-hmm. of saying, you know, of, of, of revolutionary politics and what that looks like in the 21st century, of, of what a revolution would look like now, considering 
all the kind of baggage that we've got and whether that's actually even possible. Mm-hmm. And that's an argument that's kind of had between Baju and Zizek, who kind of broadly agree on that point that something new, that, you know, we need to kind of rebuild this understanding of revolution um, and drag mm-hmm. it out of sort of this antiquated 20th century uh, idea of it, which is something that um, Mark especially was really interested in. Um, I don't know if, how big of a chain they are, but there's like a there's like a vodka bar chain in the UK called Revolution. And Mark would kind of make the point that, you know, the revolution itself becomes this kind of buzzword that's sort of like yeah. for capitalist radicality, like radical capitalism, um, rather than change. Um, and that's kind of the, you know, the, the, the cultural point of like, we are reaching this moment. That, yeah, we're in this period of stagnation. But I guess for accelerationism, the point is that when how we actually achieve that is quite terrifying. Um, so you have... Right, specifically, um, Alex Williams was um, arguably the first "quote unquote" accelerationist of the of the blogosphere because he was making a lot of uh, uh, quite uh, quite provocative and controversial posts at that time. That was sort of saying, you know, that um, the, the, in a way, kind of demonstrating that the language that we have for radical change has kind of been ultimately co-opted. When we think about radical change, we often maybe think of, you know, of impositions placed upon a system. We think about terrorism. Um, So, you know, what he sort of makes, Williams talks about this sense of like a meta-terrorism, of what that actually looks like and could be, you know, that's not necessarily just all-on-out violence, but the the very use of that word maybe suggests that there's already some sort of, there's, there's, there's a difficulty in actually articulating these ideas in the present moment, considering everything that's happened since sort of 2001 onwards, if not before. So, uh, yeah, maybe this is, I'm already losing my own thread. (laughs) It's a a difficult thing to to parse, for sure. I feel like it's it's unfair in a sense also because like... Because it's so loaded. Well, you're also a real scholar on this. Like, I mean, between your blog and your presence everywhere, you know almost too much detail about <laughs> right, exactly. all of this yeah. stuff. It's, um, it's so it is very difficult to, and, and I think it's also because it's such an embattled area and you've, I think done a really great job in like actually knowing everything about it. Um, it, it also appears, I, I can also sympathize with the, the, the compulsion to, uh, to not want to reduce it down to a really simple right. uh, description yeah. because too often that's what ends up happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in actuality it is a very complicated it's a very complicated, like Genesis story, mm-hmm. um, uh, lar- and largely circulating around lefties, you know, which is the, yeah, which is the other kind of I guess one way of doing I, it. Sorry, um, no, no, because uh, yeah. I guess that maybe if I stick to what you were saying before, maybe that's probably better. The, the, the point around at least this, yeah, the, the suggestion that you have that People's Republic of Walmart and Peter Thiel saying something very similar. I guess that's probably the best place to start in a way because it. There's this dynamic in in Capital, Volume One by Marx, where he talks about this process that he calls the negation of the negation, um, yeah. and he sort of argues this point by sort of saying that um, when we transition from feudalism to capitalism, um, the main shift socially that allowed that to happen was that uh, you know landlords and feudal lords kind of allowed the the opportunity to own private property so it was you know the 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 serfs could then have their own their own homes essentially 
But the problem with that is, is that once you make that a possibility, everyone now has to work. And if you work hard enough and long enough, you can own your own home. It's kind of like that, that carrot dangled in front of us. Mm-hmm. If that works as it's supposed to, and everybody owns their own home, you no longer have individual you know, capitalist ownership. You have social ownership. So in that sense, feudalism leads to capitalism, inevitably leads to socialism. Yep. And I guess that that's... So he kind of makes this... That, that's kind of in, in that, it's essentially where this twisted trajectory starts. Because then you have this sense that I think that... Um, I always forget the guy's name now, but it's kind of... I've seen it crop up more and more on the on the timeline, this sense of a, of um, a rentier capitalism, maybe, or, or rentierism. Rentism, I think, is yeah. one of the ways of putting it, where basically, yeah, so rent is kind of introduced as this sense where you, you're not really working to own anything, you're just working for the privilege of living somewhere. And we now yeah. see that one way that capitalism has taken, that has adapted itself to block off that inevitable, apparently inevitable lead to socialism is getting rid of this idea of ownership and turning everything into rent. So you, so it's not just that you rent your own home, but now you rent access to culture, um, access, you know, whatever it is, whether it's your iTunes, Netflix, you, your, your food deliveries even, that's all now put down to rent. And that system can arguably just lead for eternity. But I guess I suppose then you have sort of this other kind of stagnation. So it's, it's those kinds of adaptations that sort of show that whilst capitalism produces its own ways to undermine itself, it has to also sort of retard its own development in that sense and kind of languish in that stasis. So we've seen it with property, but we're now also seeing it in a lot of other ways. So you get that sense where it's not just the negation of the negation, but the negation of the negation of the negation. <laughs> and that's kind of essentially what Baju and Zizek are talking about in the 2000s. That Baju calls it this crisis of or crisis in negation. We can we, yeah. we're capable of destroying things now. We can we can maybe destroy in in, in lots of you know not just I mean in every sense of that word. Um, we can we can well I mean I guess 2020 has been a, a, a fruitful year for it. We can tear down statues and we can make reforms for. Um, uh, well, I guess. Well, yeah. There's a good example, maybe, is that there's the the, the statue of the slave trader Colston in Bristol that kind of went viral, yep. and mm-hmm. the the suggestion of why that wasn't torn down sooner was that whilst a lot of people agreed that it shouldn't be there, there was then the question of well, what do we replace it with, and that was kind of still there, like after the statue was just torn down in a kind of moment of, well, I guess that really euphoric moment of just fury. And still yeah. you have that question. I think there was one like artist put something up there and it causes further controversy. Um, and I guess, you know, that's kind of in one way illustrative of the point that Baju makes, which is that we can, we can destroy the old. We're very capable of doing that, but we struggle to produce the new. Yeah. And it's that, that's essentially the accelerationist question as it was initially formulated was how do we solve that? How do we escape from like have you know generate this kind of escape velocity that allows us to escape that crisis of negation, which mm-hmm. you know yeah you see at every level almost the the fact that Peter Thiel's like talking about a kind of socialist prefiguration of like Walmart as a prefiguration for socialism without maybe putting it in those terms yeah exactly isn't so much like the um in a way that's kind of the prediction that's already been made right it's not to say that 
we should do this. It's almost, or, I mean, maybe that's, or maybe that's partly the issue. The, the, part, the problem with people read those kinds of books and say that it's like, oh, we should do this. We should adapt Walmart to do this sort of thing. It, it, when when those kind of books are written, it kind of then, to me anyway, I don't find it at all surprising that those ideas then are picked up because it's precisely that issue of like, it's that capitalist adaptation. Capitalists are saying, yeah. oh, well, okay, maybe we'll allow you to own individual property, but we're going to yeah. stay in that sweet spot before actually, you know, achieve, we're going to stay in perpetual, you know, like arrested development forever. Um, so it's kind of like, and that's partly the, it's so difficult to navigate that in a way because, you know, yeah, what, what does that, what does it mean? Does it mean that uh, leftist ideas are being appropriated by the right or just all, you know, socialist ideas are being appropriated by capitalists or is it the socialists are actually predicting capitalists ahead of time, but then can't actually do anything about it or. I think that one. Yeah. Right. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think the left often like comes to the right conclusion way before, uh, way before the right, but then can't figure out what to do about it, which is, which is funny because you were mentioning that a lot of this discussion was happening around about the time of like, you know, the bailouts of the banks. Yeah. And of course I have here the, uh, the famous, um, the times 3rd of January, 2009 chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks, which was the uh, the message uh, contained in the in the Bitcoin Genesis block, right? Um, which I think is like exactly kind of like a um, one of my core frustrations, like existing between between worlds of like mm-hmm. somewhat lefty, uh, uh, very really like thorough, rigorous kind of debates and conversations around things, and then this parallel universe that's mostly populated by very skilled, uh, kind of very practical, kind of often quite libertarian uh, technical people who are just like, oh yeah, the banks suck. Like, let's just make this thing, you know. <laughs> like, Which is hugely inspiring. Yeah, you know, well, it can be. I mean, but it can also be, I mean, it can also be a catastrophe, of you know. Course. But, but, it, but, but it's just funny to think that, you know, this kind of debate, you know, this kind of debate in more theoretic circles like went through the ringer and then <laughs> ends up all here. And it's like, well, what does this mean? And it's all super valid, you know, and, and it's pretty much exactly like the same age as, as, as a Bitcoin, which is then just kind of, yeah, become. But I'm yeah, really, this- I'm really curious how the memetics specifically of accelerationism worked. So it started out being kind of like, you know, it was like gestating in this lefty uh, the circles with. Um, uh, you were talking about Alex, and um, I don't know if you brought up Nick. Yeah, but these are like some of the early kind of. Um, sorry, uh, Nick Cernicek. Cernicek is that how you say Cernic, it? I think. Cernic. I always add an extra. That's, that's actually one of my favorite bits of the the post capitalist lectures because Mark makes that point. It's like no, this just just to clear it out here, it's Cernak. Cernak. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so you have these people kind of like, um, yeah, I don't know, uh, you know, kind of experimenting around this idea. How does it kind of leap from this community um, and start spreading and and ultimately end up in the kind of Christchurch shooters? manifesto what's that trajectory yeah um i think that i mean, I mean th- sorry i'm sure you i'm sure you don't know the Christchurch well. shooters <laughs> right now. i'm sure you don't know the, the specifics of that but just if you could talk about the memetics of yeah, it no, it, it is, it, it's really interesting and, it, and, and it, it's, it's very sensitive too i guess that's yeah it's it's difficult to um, exactly but yeah so i guess one of the major influences on Accelerationist thinking at that time is partly comes from um, Gilles and Felix Guattari in, in the, the sort of 70s French theorists who write this 
sort of book of May 68 in France, which is the uh, anti-Oedipus. And there's this one line in there where they're essentially they're, they're talking about, just as Marx spent a lot of time talking about, they're talking about how desire functions under capitalism. And there's this great um, line, really, that that's that this this they introduce this notion that's kind of haunted political philosophy ever since. And they write that um, the death of a social machine has never been heralded by a disharmony or a dysfunction. On the contrary, social machines make a habit of feeding on the contradictions they give rise to, on the crises they provoke, on the anxieties they engender, and on the infernal operations they regenerate, which is very dense. Which is Can you read that one more time? Yeah, it's the, the death of a social machine has never been heralded by a disharmony or a dysfunction. On the contrary, social machines make a habit of feeding on the contradictions they give rise to, on the crises they provoke, on the anxieties they engender, and on the infernal operations they regenerate. Mm-hmm. And I guess that in mm-hmm. broken down, it's essentially that same argument that, that that negation of the negation that Marx points to isn't so much the beginning of capitalism's end, but it's pres- that, that, that engine, that circular engine of negation following negation following negation is precisely like sort of the, the vampiric lifeblood of capitalism. That's how it mm-hmm. continues to move forwards. Mm-hmm. And I think for accelerationism that it was accelerationism was, was always very knowingly born from that kind of uh, observation, because mm-hmm. I suppose the the main thing to say about accelerationism is that it's it was a, it was an insult. It was a pejorative term initially used by Benjamin Noyes because I think it's mm-hmm. it comes from the um, uh, is a Roger a Roger a Robert is it Roger or Roger Robert I don't know anyway what what to do are Zelazny's um, uh, science fiction book called Lord of Light, where it's this kind of, um, it's a book essentially about uh, how the West kind of has chewed up, in, in, I mean, not not quite ex- as explicitly as I'm going to make it sound, but the kind of, the gesture underneath is, is how the West kind of ch- has churned up Eastern philosophy to sort of make itself feel better about its own, the way it acts, which I guess is that kind of the, how hippies kind of become dot-com capitalists in the 90s and that sort of, that strange reaction where you can now have, yeah, this, we now have fascist hippies like in 2020, which is kind of sums up the trajectory. <laughs> and that, that, you know, Mark was obviously very aware of that, um, of that process. So in a way it's like, so acceleration is kind of born of that, right? It's, it's, it's a pejorative term that's pointing to these people that, in a way it's that solutionism thing coming back. There's people that suggest that if we just push a bit harder, we exacerbate these, we exacerbate the things that capitalism produces that undermine itself. We accelerate those bits and then we'll get to some sort of new, new found land on the other side. Yep. And what's, and so initially it's a cynical term. And then I think it's Mark Fisher himself who adopts it and affirms it as this kind of badge of honor. It's like, oh, you're, you're insulting us, but actually that's a great name, so we're going to use it. And that's kind of like that founding contradiction. And in a way, it's precisely, you know, it's that all it's it's as if that that before accelerationism was even like a cohesive um, argument, the arguments against it already existed. And it was as if to say, you know, we're not just accelerating everything willy nilly. We're not just suggesting that we have to be violent outright, but we're going to use your name for that anyway. And it's kind of that weird moment that's really, all of that's kind of knotted together. That it's, it's, It's just a mess of contradictions that finds, that grows legs. 
and marches forwards in a way that's to try and illuminate how those contradictions exist and don't break things. Yeah, yeah. But then we end up where we are now, which is that that initial observation just has become a byword for the very sort of reactionary tendencies that accelerations have kind of wanted to point to and ridicule. Um, yeah. It literally just falls on its own sword. Um, how that works mm-hmm. mimetically, I guess, is I guess it's kind of it's partly it's it's as you sort of have said it's that we're we're stuck online playing this constant game of telephone. I think that's the best way of understanding it. That we that these yeah. that's just that just happens. Is that this this we we live in this information economy, but information itself is just like innately entropic. And yeah. when we kind of don't when we aren't vigilant to that process, bad things happen. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's it's a punch and duty economy too. Yeah. Right? So it's like the the most caricature representation oh, of a thing punch and duty punch and duty sorry you're punch not english duty? so that don't make what any sense what does that mean explain that to it. <laughs> it's like a, a they're these kind of cartoonish uh it's actually a quite quite interesting uh in that like in that annoying way but like but it, but it's basically it's like a, it's like a kid's entertainment thing where you have these like uh, hand puppets that are really cartoony and they beat each other up you you'd know it if you saw it i don't know what the american equivalent would be it's actually the the uh, we could talk about this longer. It's, it's actually like, quite interesting and like really fucked up. But the can you make the a, point without the dolls? Because maybe the it's just more that like the, the web is driven by conflict and <laughs> caricatures of positions mm-hmm. tend to endure longer than fleshed out kind of mm-hmm. long form, uh, long form uh, uh, representations of those positions, right? So mm-hmm. like with accelerationism, also because there's kind of like a trolley component to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like totally of the embracing the contradictions and like, like riding the lightning or whatever, or the whole like thirst for <laughs> annihilation. Like, you know, you, you've seen the, many will have seen the Twitter avatars, right? Where it's like the, yeah, like, uh, yeah, the, the skeleton on the motorbike or whatever. <laughs> but like, this kind of like cheesy, like kitsch component to it also like endured. I mean, like that image of just like, you know, committing like societal, like, uh, Harry Carey by like driving the driving the the airplane into the building or whatever is like but it kind of a powerful <laughs> image you know that that sticks around longer than any of the more nuanced discussions that maybe had around why that joke emerged in the first place yeah. right. which takes us back I guess it's maybe another way of putting it is that because I guess there's the you know the, the sort of ominous figure of, of Nick Land hovers over accelerationism massively but one mm-hmm. of the very first posts that was made about accelerationism explicitly sort of around 2008, 2009 by Alex Williams. It's kind of titled like a, um, a, a, I can't remember the exact title, but he uses the phrase post-Landian as if to say yeah. that that kind of, that, yeah, that, that Harry Carey sort of capitalist bent is kind of the punk moment that Land represents. But what gets yeah, lost in that dynamic is that, you know, there was that, there was the post, the, 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 the like, likes of K-Punk and, all, and everybody else in that moment, they represented the, the post-punk to Land's punk. 100%. And that kind of you know, getting, yeah. you, you can have that adolescent moment of destruction, which is very cathartic and quite thrilling and provocative. But yeah. you know, it's it's what what then what do you do after that? And it's and that's the questions that were being asked, and that's precisely the questions that have kind of been lost, I think. Yeah, totally. Well, it's really tapping into this idea of the libidinal and also the death drive, which is very much covered in this book, Post-Capitalist Desire. Nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. So maybe we can talk about that, what what that means in this context here. What is post-capitalist desire? Yeah. Um, I suppose that the 
the important word there is, I guess, it's very easy to focus on post-capitalism because it's sexy. But yeah. the, <laughs> the important word there, I think, for Mark especially, is desire. The mm, desire, also sexy. You know I mean? yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but it's the suggestion. But I guess it's the, maybe the point is that it's 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 retaining its sexiness. That that desire kind of becomes this byword for want for. Well, for one, which I guess essentially is what we assume to be the driving motor of capitalism, that we, we, we are the consumer society is driven by want and things that and lack and things that we don't have we desire and all that sort of stuff. But I think the point that Mark wants to get across is that and I guess it comes from that um it comes back to that weird contradiction of, yeah, you you want to change society but you live in a society. It's like, well, you you, you want you want need, we want change, but you also want things. So, want, yeah. um, <laughs> and I guess it's Mark's way of suggesting that you know capitalism doesn't have the monopoly on desire. We, it, yeah. it, 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 as much as we associate uh, that kind of lust for the new with the perpetual production of products and whatever else, new iPhone every year. We need to kind of, you know, what in what ways can we actually change that? You know, take that emotional, that libidinal, that that kind of driving force, and f- push it in other directions. What is a post-capitalist desire? Um, yep. And that's a very much an open question, I think, for Mark, but one that um, I think that's, and I think maybe it, it, I guess the, the the problem I'm having in articulating this is that it sounds, I think, it's deceptively simple. Um, to just say, what if we wanted other things? But yep. there's a there's a when you, once you get sort of lift the hood on that question, it's very very difficult one to answer. But I think what Mark wanted more than anything was that we actually get back to engaging with it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, and it's really funny too because I see this is also um, when you were saying before, you know, that that he went through this process after capitalist realism where in a sense he kind of reconciles some of the like reconstructs some of the dragons he slayed from before of all of a sudden developing more of a tolerance for like the hippie countercultural movement which to be honest i personally also have like a few bones to pick with or whatever but like but but developing more of a tolerance for these things um and one thing i think that's kind of interesting about this where also you see you know worlds that you'd think would be quite far away actually coming quite close together is that ultimately, you know, even from like a capitalist perspective of someone who's thinking about, you know, venture capital, like building and building a new world through those means, there is this kind of uh, like complementary observation of stagnation, as I said, as I kind of mentioned before. And in one of the lectures, uh, in one of Mark's lectures here, I remember he was mentioning something along the lines of like, you know, what's really ironic is that, um, you know, the the Beatles sold the most when they existed in conditions that necessitated them to work the least. Yeah, um, which is very similar, in effect, to a lot of the romance around like Silicon Valley kind of you know hippie culture or whatever. This idea of like, oh, you have this you know, wonderful purple period where the kind of like a new Californian bohemia in which people were just fucking around with stuff for the sake of it, and from that came. Uh, you know, from that came Apple or whatever, right? And I mean, similar closer to home with you, Holly, like I mean, the genesis of the program you studied at at Karma at Stanford was like John Channing, who's like, 
I wouldn't quite say a hippie, um, <laughs> but like <laughs> no, but he, he was, was a composer. A com- exactly. Just like playing, like messing around in the studio and then happened upon the, disc, you know, the invention of FM synthesis, which basically is in every cell phone in the world or whatever. That's where but, I always feel the generational divide when I'm reading Kim Stanley Robbins. Cause it, like in, in his kind of like future societies, there's always like this like interpretive dance troupe or something like painting or something. And he's, he's describing that as some sort of utopia. And I'm like, Oh my God. That film about the dome, what was it called? Oh, I don't know. The Earth. Uh, oh god, I'm going to mess this up. But, no, but but the point being is that like you know even even not coming from this like very uh, like strictly from a left position, this question of stagnation and being able to somehow like reset the imagination, I feel is just is really pregnant just across the board. Yeah. You know, like that's something that like I see happening in all different corners that I'm aware of that. You know, uh, and these are corners that generally you you consider to be thinking about different things. Um, but there seems to be just generally this kind of open question of being like, well, okay, we want new stuff. Like, what would that be? And maybe the habits that we're in aren't the best conditions to stimulate that imagination. And actually, what you have to do is, you know, as they tried to do in the 20th century, like drop some acid and then start making connections on an, on an entirely different whiteboard. You know. Yeah. Um, but or, or what, what what would stimulate something similar now? Because uh, it feels like in in this kind of march towards stagnation, all we do is just like create create like smaller and smaller fractals of bad mistakes we've made in the past. So now it's like you know every app the you know we have ten apps now to do what one app did ten years ago, yes. <laughs> and you tra- and you're charged ten times more to use them all. You know, I guess it's partly. Uh, I wonder that one thing about it is that we are so. I guess part of it, it's, it's it's that sense that we had in the 90s around the, the end of history that kind of becomes a sort of yeah, cliche yeah. that we're at the end of something. We can now look back. Capitalism, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we you know can look back and capitalism has this overall success and capitalism is everywhere. Um, and, it's, and it kind of reduces this, um, I guess that, that, that itself poses a problem of like, you know, there's no outside. And that's something that I guess comes up in the final lecture for the, when Mark's talking about um, Jean-Francois Lyotard and his book, Libidinal Economy. And he kind of makes this point there that, um, yeah, that there is no outside. There's no going back to a pre-capitalist moment, but what does post-capitalism look like when capitalism kind of covers everything? And it yeah. kind of reminds me of that, um, it's kind of why that essay I mentioned earlier, the, the sort of zombie formalism kind of haunts my head in a way. Cause I was going to be my, yeah. my initial interest was always art history. And there's this like great essay that um, Mark Rothko once wrote called the, um, I don't know if it has a title, but it's called the romantics were prompted. Um, and he kind of talks about how, well, I mean, uh, the, um, it's just like the first paragraph's amazing. It's like these two lines. He says the romantics were prompted to, to seek exotic subjects and to travel to far off places they fail to realize that though the transcendental must involve the strange and unfamiliar, not everything strange and unfamiliar is transcendental. <laughs> I just think it's amazing. And, and in a way that kind of like Mark's argument ahead of time. Um, it's, yeah. it's that as much as Mark loved the, the weird and the eerie and, and in a way wanted to make those, you know, that, that I guess that's one thing that I always end up pushing a lot as well, that I think that's sort of seen as Mark's throwaway spooky book about, horror films and ghost stories but actually it's deeply important to his whole trajectory because it's the mm-hmm. how to make the weird and the eerie legible again and, and actually have a sort of vigilance around 
yeah, the moments where those that what is strange and unfamiliar can lead us to somewhere new, and the moments when actually it's it's sort of the uncanniness of like, well, the, the, I guess the uncanniness that we have with uh, AIs are we always the example used, right? That we that when we if we have robots that look very much like humans, then we feel a bit weird about it because maybe that is so familiar in its or when you make something so new, so familiar is that it's that whole sort of strange contradiction is is partly i guess where we're at but but not just in terms of you know our own appearances but actually the the appearances of like these other worlds around us what if we you know if we, if we built a new it's kind of that robinson crusoe problem that we could we could we could fly out to somewhere new and found this uninhibited land maybe probably in outer space at this point and what would stop yeah. us what do we have in place that would stop us from just rebuilding what we've come from like how do we actually imaginatively or in terms of our consciousness escape sort of that baggage well you 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 said before something that really kind of like stuck out to me you said it seems like it would be something really easy like well we right. don't want capitalism so what is it that we do need want and this is something i mean this is basically what haunts me in like my day-to-day art practice is like what do i want to create what do i want to see in the world what it you know when we were making platform one thing that we talked a lot about was this kind of need for new fantasies because new fantasies can lead to new realities and you know we felt like we were in this kind of constant kind of like retromania situation and music music is specifically really bad for that i think the film industry is also really with like the franchise craziness is also pretty um retromaniac but um yeah this question of what is it you want that's actually the hardest thing actually in the world to formulate to imagine this this something else and w- what it is one actually desires yeah i think i remember you, remember you you talking about this with um um with 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 spawn too that it, like do, do you feel like you have that sort of chicken and egg situation where you you create this new program or soft i mean i'm, I'm going to show my technical idiocy here but you sort of create this new way of making music but then it comes a question like a chicken and egg question of is it that it's actually generating new things or is it dependent on what we put into it? And then how that actually, as much as it becomes a new, it's generative to an extent, but mm-hmm. then maybe you find the limitations of that own generation and and then, and, and, and sort of just navigating that whole mess becomes like a real headache. Um, so I can kind of totally see that that's, I mean, I guess that is, yeah. I mean, cause I'm, I'm I mean, I'm saying this as a, as a fan of what you both do. And I guess that's something that you've, maybe like, you can kind of see it through your work right from from movement as sort of exploring the the, the 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 laptop as an instrument that is is unfamiliar maybe in a live setting and running with that and yeah and then you hit the limit and then you move on yeah with with platform and you kind of interrogate those limits and then mm-hmm. move you kind of move a step further outwards and each and each time kind of come up at a limit but then also reinvent in a way that kind of it just i think it 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 cult like because this I, i'm saying this not just to <laughs> blow smoke at you both but like the please continue yeah like it's, it's good. Good. we've got all night it's good. <laughs> precisely the problem that like mark was dealing with i think in these because it doesn't quite come across in lectures maybe just in snatches but he's talking about how you know the 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 cultural way of 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 articulating this is really difficult, and I guess maybe that's cultural is a very broad sense, but or whether that's aesthetically or whatever else, like how how do you take these questions that we can talk about in terms of technology or economics and and get really down into the sort of details of the thing, and that in a way kind of also can be a 
restriction, like that's kind of the argument that Leotard makes and Mark points to in the final lecture that Leotard criticizes Marx for trying to write this unfathomably huge critique of economy or of political economy and of, of capitalism that yep. that is so long-winded that he never reaches the end of it. And it's that kind of, um, it's knowing like when to stop and when to move on to the next thing that is super important. And it's like that that's, that's, I think Mark sort of sees the sense that that's easier to understand from a more sort of artistic perspective. And that you kind of, I think that, from for, for me anyway, you've both always represented that of like having that quite, it, it appears to me as a kind of fearlessness that is, yeah, that knowing where the limit is and then like pushing past it to the next thing and kind of keep like, like there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, cons- there's a very strong consistency across those albums, but nevertheless, each one's kind of introduced as a, as this new radical thing and not to say, and, and to say that it's both of those and actually trying to like understand what effects that has maybe more broadly on other people um, is kind of like where that, where those issues really lie, I think. Um, and was really obvious actually yeah. in your live show. Cause I remember seeing, I think I saw you both at the, at the Barbican. And kind of like, oh, um, cool. that was fun. It was, yeah, it was a great show, but I guess you have that. Cause you, I think you maybe make a point in the show that spawn isn't there. So you're kind of just, you're yeah. doing this thing with your friends. And in a way that kind of shows like, <laughs> It was it was like so powerful for me because that was precisely like that's been the how to actually navigate that was is precisely where I've been at with working with Mark's stuff. Like Mark's mm. not here, but how do you push forward with those ideas with friends? And it's with friends that maybe people get a bit like, oh, you, it sounds a bit soft and a bit lovey dovey and a bit a bit too humanist, considering you're so you know we're so invested in technology and the new potentials of that, but. You have to, it's, it's finding the balance between those two things that's super important and doing that culturally is kind of like, that's the sweet spot and that's where it'll have the most impact. Well, wow, that was really beautiful. Yeah, that's really kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's also true though. I mean, it's true because that's also, it's this weird, like we were talking yesterday with a friend of ours, Simon, and he was talking about like metamodernism, which is like a, a term I've been familiar with. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I, I couldn't say I sub- subscribe to it if, uh, uh, other than the fact that like uh, from what I know of it, it sounds quite charming. Um, but, but for me, I'm always, I always classify as in the kind of like melancholy, like modernist position right. where it's like a lot of the stuff that like I admire the most, even though I understand the arguments or the kind of futility of that period, the thing I admire the most is this kind of very, uh, uh, Sisyphean kind of desire to produce something new yeah. um, and not in like a uh, which I think can be very easily confused for like a thirst for novelty in like a, a gimmicky way you know but more so just being like oh like for me at least like music and culture at least uh, at least when you're kind of young too like a lot of like rich music and culture always kind of delivers on this promise because you don't know anything. And then you get involved in like a subculture and like, holy shit, like I just had my entire world turned upside down. Like I can now live an entirely different life. I can now meet entirely different people as a result of exposures to this idea, you know? So like, so there's this very deep romance with this idea of culture being this place where you can like completely transform yourself through the the simple point of like having access to an idea or whatnot right and like and so in a sense maybe that develops like a weird habit where like when you're dealing with cultural stuff then like my at least standard is being like oh no like would this produce you know like 
if if you're creating a rabbit hole right now, like how deep would that rabbit hole go? And like, would you have some, would, would you be legitimately producing something new in the world as, you know, which is of course like this completely elusive pursuit. Um, but that's, but that's like the thing I'm like hooked on, but that's the, that's the, but like, that's what makes it worthwhile. And that's what yeah, also yeah. makes it so incredibly painful. As a yeah, yeah, totally. And, and futile, completely <laughs> futile because it's like, you're never actually going to get to that point. Well, but, Simon was talking about the kind of like, you're always running to the horizon, but you still like, you still have that desire to reach the horizon. So you still keep running towards it. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> it, you know, but uh, yeah, but also just the fact, I think that like, you know, I think for a lot of people, and maybe this is like, where if there is like a, a a group of people who maybe were more inspired by Mark's work than than other people who you would normally associate with like music or culture, um, I think that a shared kind of like appreciation or uh, a shared romance around the idea of the new um, or of like transcendence or or these kind of Promethean ideas of like being better, you know, and being different and be or whatever, like that to me that that pursuit to me was always more important than music per se yeah right like i personally don't care about music you know by default like 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 the the uh the what, what would you say like the store version the 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 kind of the generic you know like like music per se like i don't really care about that i got involved in music because of that yeah part um and even though I can appreciate it and listen to pastiche music or, you know, enjoy music for just what it is sometimes, I see that as very, very separate to whatever it is that we're interested in, you know, and the people who are similarly also interested in those dimensions to me are kind of like the people I want to learn from and like, I want to tap their brain and like figure and hang out with those people, you know, versus the idea of someone who like enjoys listening to beats you know, while they work or something yeah. like that. Like to me, I have that, that. You might as well be talking to me about like crochet or something. You know, that, that's just not like, that's not my, that's not my shit. You know, that's not, that's not anything I'm interested in. You know, I guess it's that, maybe it's that, it's that cul-de-sac of passivity, right? It's like you have an active interest in, in, in culture as, as like this kind of like umbrella term for these different vectors, whatever they may be. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just thinking. <laughs> but I was, I was thinking on the point of, uh, uh, meta meta modernism thing because I wonder if it yeah. like, again I think it maybe it keeps coming back to that point that I think is the key one especially for Mark that that of of post and post punk and that relationship because I mean I'm, I'm I get totally obsessed with the the sort of strange trajectory of modernism quote unquote as like a kind of movement where you have that yeah. like quite very explosive experimental exploratory phase of like a um uh quite well it's it's that moment where you have the the, the, the a popular culture and an avant-garde kind of meet in the middle um and yeah. you can have something like i don't know like virginia Woolf's mrs dalloway being like a kind of bestseller sort of vibe which is like again a kind of a book that maybe gets uh, i mean I, yeah that's probably the tangent because i get obsessed with wolf being having this very popular understanding of being like a everything that she's not in a way that she's kind of quite She's deceptively provocative, and the idea of her is actually quite reduced. But that's kind of a anyway. Besides the point, really. <laughs> but I guess you have that trajectory, and then you have that this that kind of those great moments of tragedy. That is, you have that striving for the new, and then you have the two world wars, and especially the Holocaust, and you have that sudden uh, 
realization that this, you know, we thought we would produce on the new before, but now this this thing has happened has kind of reduced and just destroyed any sense of continuity that we could have had. Like we had now, there's like a new imperative on it to actually have a break with this great horror, and that's a very difficult yeah. thing to do in a way that 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 like you know that it's not actually often true that um, newness is just provo- provoked by or produced by tragedy. Um, and that there's this kind of, there's a new sort of mourning, mournful tension in there. And I kind of see that postmodernism kind of has a similar trajectory. We kind of have this 90s moment of great experimentation in a lot of ways, especially in dance music, but how that's oddly yeah. conflated and mixed up with new advances in how capitalism manages itself. And then you have 9-11, and then you have this kind of like further shift where that, newness becomes more of a it's like it's like it's almost like we we learned from our mistakes as kind of a civilization that we we kind of knew that the the new was more of a fallacy after that moment because that's the one thing to say that i think alex williams makes this point in in the midst of the blogosphere where he kind of criticizes mark's obsession with hauntology and his uh, despite having this kind of very open distrust of Pomo, as he calls it, or postmodernity, because as far as Williams can tell, hauntology is like just good postmodernism, um, mm. kind of because it's so self-aware uh, and not maybe not cynically so. It's kind of using that self-awareness, that kind of uh, the awareness of that now elongated cultural memory that we now all have thanks to technology, and seeing the kind of strange sort of Jack Nicholson and the Shining or Oberus weirdness that kind of could come from that. But yep. that's, whilst that's very generative, I guess it is, it's, it, it's always, that's, that's just like the thing that I think was always to be emphasized that it's always the, the kind of knowing exploration, the, the collective exploration of those things that kind of gets lost because that's the one thing, I guess, maybe that even takes us right back to the start almost of talking about the blogosphere. The reason why that was so exciting wasn't just because it had these, it was this series of figureheads. Um, like the, the, it, the part of the thrill of K-Punk wasn't just what Mark was writing, but the whole discussion that would follow in the comments. And we and that's going to be the one thing, especially someone who's like now is still, you know, I still blog at the moment and try and, just because I mean, I've always, I mean, I guess I've all, it's, it's, it, it feels pastiche to actually own a blog now, but I guess I've just always done it. And I love that as a kind of way of, yeah, that, the, the, the immediacy of that. But there is no comment section anymore. Everything you, you write and then it happens on Twitter. And that, that yeah. is that sort of shift where, um, I guess, yeah, it's it's a point that Jody Dean makes too, and I guess this it, it reminded me of Jody Dean when you're talking about the the sense of running towards a horizon, and her book, The Communist Horizon, is really amazing on that. Mm-hmm. But she also has this phrase that um, Mark would borrow that is community communicative capitalism, being mm-hmm. that how we interact socially is kind of the one thing that we've always still had, sort of yeah. the, the outside the, the sphere of capitalism. We could always, you know, that that we that hadn't been. Um, as if, as if she, she sort of makes the argument that capitalism functions by making sort of biological imperatives for itself, which is something that Herbert Marcuse, who was a huge influence on Mark, also suggests that it's not just that the things that capitalism produces is are think the things that capitalism produces are nice, but they're essential. 
So yep. you have to buy food. You have to have a home. And those things are so wrapped up with capitalism that we can't escape them. And the, f- the, the, the major imposition that capitalism makes in the 21st century for Mark and for Jody Dean and others is that it, it, it now monopolizes how we interact socially. So now it's like you can't talk to each other. We, we can't talk to each other, and especially in a pandemic like this one, we can't talk to each other without um, a laptop or a phone or whatever else. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And I guess it's partly that that's, it, it's, it's, it's like the, it's partly that thing of the, the sort of deceptive nature of how capitalism again adapts, I guess, because it's that thing of um, capitalist realism supposedly sort of being worn down a bit. And because we, we know that these things can fail, but actually, and, you know, and, and the coronavirus pandemic suggests that these things we once held up as, you know, essential parts of capitalist economy aren't so essential. Uh, we can work from home. We can check, we can adapt how we live our lives and things don't end. But perhaps that's because Apple had the foresight to introduce the iPhone in 2008, as if to say that, you know, if, if things might have gone very differently, if capitalism hadn't already sort of put an embargo on how we communicate. And it's as if that is precisely what's different from the sort of 20th century version of modernism being like, how do we, how can we creatively you know, deal with these issues. You have people sort of talking about like, how do we deal with the Holocaust in cinema? I think it was like Jean-Luc Godard's thing. Like the cinema failed in art forms it didn't deal with the Holocaust properly. But now we have, well, how do we, and then I guess the point to be made from that is that, you know, it, it, that's all wrapped up with that whole auteur theory that, that, you know, that, that we can, you can be that kind of practitioner in a, in a radical sense that you can work in cinema, um, work in the kind of the Hollywood system but actually have a, you know, still have a radical voice. And I guess that what's the equivalent of that now? What, where, when everything is kind of under a certain kind of capitalist embargo um, or under that wide umbrella, even culture and communication itself, how modernism or postmodernism or metamodernism kind of, like, I guess this is a very long-winded say, but the, my understanding of metamodernism is kind of like it's dealing with that tension, that yep, yep, how yep. that can be rectified if at all um when you know the, the leotard writes for which in the 70s which mark uses right at the end of the, the, the last lectures that there is no outside but it's it feels sort of weird now that that like some sort of weird game of Fortnite, that circle that in, in which we are like have some sort of sense of autonomy is constricting and you know that the, the, there's we've lost the outside and now what we're losing is kind of more and more interiority and so that's, I guess that's kind of why I bring the point up of that. I, I find it interesting when you, when you work culture in that way, that there is very much emphasis on the collective that I kind of can see people being easily cynical about, but actually that kind of, you know, having that autonomy of interiority and how you actually connect with other people beyond yourself is maybe becoming, you know, is becoming a, a, a really fierce battleground again in a way that we maybe wasn't anticipated um, when we sort of assumed that those conversations were left in the 20th century and that's partly yeah, totally. marks out with like going back to the 60s and 70s those potentials are kind of oddly more relevant now but because of the further impositions that have been made yeah no totally i mean the yeah and, and also it it and also like for for many i mean for the collective stuff of course like the the kitsch there is this kind of like 
kitsch idea of like you know the the american like communization or like swedish pornography from the 70s or something <laughs> this is you know like you know, you get these kind of like ideas of being like oh like all these failed experiments of like you know, uh, polygamous uh polygamous communities in in the oregon forest or whatever you know the, um you get that idea and then the other side to it is just like actually know that you know beyond though that kind of that kind of caricature you know that when you reconsider uh uh, quote sorry the, the the interdependence of things um you can think of no but it's true yeah. you can think of entirely different entirely different ways of, of doing things that don't have to fall into um this kind of kitsch. yeah yeah totally you know that don't have to fall into like chore sharing uh sheets on the communal fridge you know like it doesn't have to be a granola co-op you know i don't have anything against these things but but in actuality that and i mean this is one of the things as well with kind of like this idea of like a Promethean left or whatever that I personally found really attractive is basically this idea of suggesting, no, like actually like you can have really new stuff and new stuff doesn't always have to be like the lone spear, you know, the lone individual kind of piercing things. Like, well, we had a, we had Nathan, I'm forgetting his last name, Schneider on recently. And he was talking about how we, um, you know, in the U S there are collectively owned uh, nuclear power plants. Mm. Like it, not necessarily like your local food co-op. Absolutely, and that, <laughs> and that's and that's the big mis, misnomer I think is that oftentimes also the the you know, a caricature of the left that 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 starts with the right over time sometimes gets subsumed into the left's understanding of itself. You know, yeah. Um, and 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 the thing for me is it's like actually you know beyond even the left right binary to be honest because like I often find some of those classifications really difficult uh, to you know to to identify with, but like the you know the the i was i was looking while you were talking i was like you know the electric power grid was invented in like something like 1880 right and there was about 60 years between that and like the atom bomb in let's say the 40s or so mm. right we're 60 years past the 60s right if you think about the leap from literally no one having any electricity to, you know, like this fame, I mean, like this, this famous like period of like mechanized terror being like <laughs> 60 years. Right. And, and we're here now being like, you know, it, it, the, the thing for me too is also like beyond any of like this history of modernism, postmodernism, whatever, just like reminding people that like the new happened a lot yeah. and with great frequency, you know, that, that, and that actually like, I feel a bit robbed of it, you know, largely because of how stagnant a lot of visions of like neoliberal capitalism like became, I feel robbed of that moment of the new where I'm like, no, like new shit happened all the time in the 20th century, like with incredible frequency, particularly at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and, and stoking that imagination now, I think beyond like what the particular outcome might be, it's just important to remind people. It's like in music, we'll do this quite often, specifically talking about Channing being like, Okay, like it's cool to have like a micro argument about like which pattern on in Ableton like constitutes a new genre, you know? <laughs> and you're like, John Channing made sounds that didn't exist in nature. Well, this is what I was, you know, like th this is what I was thinking when when you were speaking, Matt, is that you you expressed it in such a nice way that it was very complimentary. But I was thinking it's so difficult to express in an um, academic music setting how rigorous our practice is yeah. when it's not kind of the rigor is about kind of understanding this 
whatever this new desire is and kind of in like a wider cultural context rather than kind of looking at what I what kind of like idiosyncratic musical system I can create for specifically for musical language and that almost doesn't function outside of or you know ideas outside of that kind of don't function in music academia and that's why it's stagnated so much Mm -hmm. in a way yeah totally well because there's not because when you produce like such a rigid like a rigid framework and particularly when it's like the Western canon, et cetera, et cetera. Like you produce such a rigid framework. Like, I mean, this is the joke about, and sorry if this is getting really esoteric as academic music tends to, <laughs> uh, uh, but like, you know, but there's this, the kind of joke, or at least my private joke is like, you know, eventually they're just like, Oh, you know, we've kind of done everything. Let's just do it faster. Let's make it harder. Right. And like Brian Fernie, who also taught at Stanford, who's like a master of like new complexity and all this kind of stuff. But it's like the last great idea to happen in, uh, in academic music is like it got literally the theory is everything got too easy we need to make it more difficult for the players and so you're like giving them these scores where people have to contort themselves to perform this stuff it's like a sadistic sport it's literally like but a, a like very, the idea to look outside of musical language exactly is exactly. like so foreign and could just not even be like yeah but across the board every, that's what's mm-hmm. needed in the sense is you're like you know even the idea that it might be controversial again to go back to Channing it's like like he discovered something that created sounds that never existed before that never like it, it it's so you know there's so much rhetoric and hyperbole around <laughs> art constantly you're like no 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 that's cool but like he literally made sounds that never existed before that's not like a that's an objective truth you know so some of this modernist shit is like actually kind of cool you know like <laughs> It's not like the realm of like debates of like, oh, he put a different context on things. It's like, no, 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 no. He made sounds that didn't exist before. And actually we could do that again, mm-hmm. you know, but in order to do that again or configurations that didn't exist before, you need to, you need to like exactly like try and stimulate or, you know, uh, stimulate some, some desire or some belief that <laughs> some belief that that stuff could actually happen. And it's not just kind of an exercise, you know, in, in, uh, in an exercise in kind of a melancholy disappointment. Yeah. You know? I think that's partly, in a way, that that I think that brings it, that back to that, that 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 final lecture on desire, in a way, and 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 and, and Leotard's argument in Libidinal Economy, which Mark is reading with his students, because there's that sense that I was thinking of it again when you when you mentioned that fact that yeah, in in academic music, everything has to get faster or harder, or yeah, you have to make things <laughs> more difficult for yourself, and it's as if that that's like a pervasive problem, like within capitalism, but specifically for the left, like yeah. Uh, I guess it's as if, as if the because, in some way, maybe capitalism or well, in, well to say innovations are made, and then an overarching institution will say that's quite good actually. Let's like make that widely accessible and for like yeah. for money. So that supposedly like taints the innovation that's been made, um, and it kind of comes back to that. I guess that's the the point of 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 making the argument around the, the sort of the collective thing because again yeah the, the the point of that can be um easily ridiculed as, as some sort of hippie notion but I guess yeah. it's the point to say that that the suggestion that we could live communally was this quite radical th- way of thinking about organizing our lives beyond the kind of nuclear family and then yeah, yeah, yeah. but weirdly enough now the way that the sort of property markets have gone, we're kind of all having to do that anyway because capitalism has forced us to live with our friends. Like we don't want to live at home. We have to live together. But that kind of communal living 
becomes like less of a joy, but is implemented through this kind of further masochism. Like, okay, that's become, you know, living together communally has become really easy now. So now we have to flog ourselves by doing more activism or even if that's not, not just about the left, but I guess that's what Leotard says about the working class more generally that, you know, that, the, you you have this hard working life where actually you know you're down the mine all day or something and you get home and you don't have much to eat. Now you can go to your sort of labor labor you know, as work as a laborer or whatever else. I mean, I guess this not, not this is very class reductionist, but you can you know you, you can go to work and you can come back and you can go to the pub or you can go and just have a takeaway. Like life becomes so much easier because it's that those improvements are somehow tainted by capitalism we're supposed to renounce them and actually just you know we have to we we, we there's as if real real progress only comes from suffering um yeah and it's kind of challenging that thing that actually you no know, going back and realizing that in a way this is this is kind of what we were fighting for and yes there's horrible caveats and we don't really want this to be under the rubric of capitalism We've we we still you know it, it, it's as if to say that we only live like this because capitalism has to, to has had to adapt to our desires. It's not that we are doing this you know I guess because I guess that's the capitalism tries to put the cart before the horse and say we've allowed this to happen for you. It's like no, these are desires that we've had of within ourselves and capitalism has adapted to us rather than the other way around. And if we kind of frame it that way and a better appreciate the kind of that that kind of innate radical the, the innate radicalism of our desires mm-hmm. we can maybe hopefully if we have a vigilance towards that yeah like stay ahead of the curve maybe or you know retain a um a certain kind of um uh like you can make i mean because i guess maybe the point is that it's i i hear you making this argument around academic music and i say that's yeah that's great that makes total sense but you, you extract the argument elsewhere and it becomes sort of now this weird convoluted proposition, but actually we're, we're far more capable of understanding it kind of in microcosm. But what if we take that kind of thing that happens everywhere in all kinds of different, you know, subject areas or, or, or productive interests, creative or otherwise, how can we, you know, once we, once we notice that happening and how those things are kind of manipulated and twisted, does our vigilance of that more broadly allow us to make these changes happen in a way that doesn't lead to our own exploitation? That doesn't just add, you know, how do we affirm that without just making more masochism for ourselves? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. And regain agency over your own desire. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's also true because it's also just this pliability, right? And I mean, I think you see that with like, I mean, particularly in like the States, you know, with, Let's say, like, I mean, I don't want to say leftist activist concerns in the states because very the idea of what a leftist is in the United States is like a very peculiar thing. But just this, <laughs> but there's this idea, for example, of like understanding the mutability of 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 capital in the states is really striking, right? It's like because you now have a scenario where it's almost kind of like what are those? What, what was that film where like you have this like mirror, uh, like mirror alien entity that like is it is it in Annihilation? Where you're like, oh, that cheesy dancing at the end. Yeah, I really yeah. didn't like it. They really did Jeff Vandermeer dirty on that oh, one yeah, because the book is the book is really yeah, the good. Book's amazing. 
<laughs> but whatever. But it's this kind of like mimicry component, you know, where you're just like, okay, like now you have these kind of absurd scenarios where like Google or Amazon are like posting tweets about abol- abolish the police, right? Because like, because ultimately when you're talking about competing desires, like the only desire of companies on that level or capitalism generally is for its own survival. There's no intrinsic, like it will contort and it will contort and assume and shapeshift whatever you want it to, so long as you're feeding it, Mm. you know, so long as you're, you're happy to contribute to it. Right. So, and pushing it to an extreme, which is actually like a really interesting thing to be a part of, right. To see like, for example, I mean, like I remember going on like a, a BLM march in Oakland in like 2011 and being like, okay, imagine in nine years time that every major company in the world will be getting behind this particular message that is coming from a very, like at the time, a very marginal place. And, and the, the capital itself will be absolutely happy to absorb that critique and, and reflect it back and reflect it back to you. Right. Like, 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 that's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing to have occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the, but the general point being is that like, it, it would most likely do that in any circumstance. Like if there was enough popular traction for a particular idea, it most likely would also begin to mimic that too. The, 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 well, I mean, capitalists also rallied around Hitler. Like- <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's, 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 it, because the, the point is, is that it's, it's intended to mimic your desire. It's intended to. And so ultimately if you can get, if you can get uh, enough, you know, enough uh, enough traction somehow for uh, uh, for particular ideas, um, then you know you might not actually find that much impotence in the short term, but long term, that yeah, that becomes more difficult. <laughs> There's more you you can find superfi- superficial satisfaction for your for your desires, um, but but actually like material satisfaction, that's where it gets really really tricky, yeah. which we could talk about for like a really long time. Um, <laughs> well, I was thinking that it's this is actually something that I, I think like Philip K. Dick always like dramatizes super well because it's essentially like. But the issue becomes one of control, right? That it's in that sense, it's about controlling the narrative, and that feels really central at the moment, especially in the UK, because they've um, related to the Black Lives Matter movement. There's um, one of the the sort of major moral panic going on at the moment, and I don't know if you saw this, was that there was a a, a game between a football game between Millwall and someone else, and the players all took the knee at the start of the match, and all the Millwall fans booed. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And there was this, this yeah. there was like this discussion in the, um, I mean, it's been nonstop in a lot of the, the press, but it's as if to say, like, that it's it's interesting that, and this is a point more broadly, actually, that I noticed that um, woke, the phrase woke capitalism has kind of become this really mm-hmm. cynical phrase deployed quite often by the right. Whereas, you know, yeah, it's yeah. essentially just like, pink capitalism or homo capitalism from you know the, the argument coming from the left that cap yeah that capitalism does that it tries to latch on to you, know, you have banks advertising at pride or or the police getting yeah. involved in pride parades like it's that same argument but now flip the other way and that the right now says but i think that the, the, there was an argument on some radio station with this woman saying that um her husband was there and he booed um, but he booed because it's just a hollow gesture and it's just like you know taking the knees as much as like it's just like a, a, a a hashtag it doesn't mean anything yeah. and in a way it's like that's i don't think that's true i mean in a way it is true but it, it it's as if to say that like by capitalism 
or you know these when we see these institutions latch on to a kind of gesture like that even if the the, the, it's important to continue it because i think the the counter argument made is that maybe this 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 gesture should continue because it keeps that conversation present And, and as long as we keep thinking about it then that's as much as we can hope for but it's as if that you know capitalism does these things to precisely to control it so this um, yeah. And that, and that, that, that is, is if it, you know, it, that that is precisely where the question of desire comes in. In a way, it's like once capitalism has uh, appropriated something, then we end up, you know, reacting to it in a way that um, there's, there's there's a line that, 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 that I think in his book Vallis, um, Philip K. Dick has like this perfect description of this whole process, and it's just like um, we learn to defer our own gratification. Um, yeah. Because that gives us the illusion of self mastery and autonomy, you know, we we kind of we yeah. we dupe ourselves into thinking that, like, if if we if we if we boo the 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 anti racist football players, we have control over our own thoughts and feelings. That you know, we we we, we don't have to give in to what's being sold to us. But yeah. it's a fallacy because that you know it, it's it it's that the weird sort of ingrown logic that capitalism often will you know the, the the market will respond in a way that precisely makes us have that reaction like a kind of inverted hipster desire to like reject the popular totally. and that means yeah it makes me of think of it but we're fundamentally not because it's kind of that's precisely the point to kind of diff, to point us in these different directions all the time keep us confused mm. yeah it, it makes me think of the, the the kind of genius but dastardly um this must have been seven or eight years ago but i remember there was like a bunch of like dissident bloggers in china who decided to basically publish like long and lengthy critiques of like factory working conditions in certain parts of china Um, and i remember initially there was kind of this debate about like you know who who were they and like the authorities were kind of looking for them because you know in some in some cases you know free speech free press isn't really a thing though let's just say that um and but the genius and dastardly tactic ultimately was that um, uh, authorities basically came forward, managed to identify two or three of the most active bloggers, and then gave them a job and an office to basically become like to publish from the factory. Right. And so in a sense, it, it's this perfect kind of response to it because what they were saying is like, look, publicly, you know, you've managed to generate a lot of critique for what we're doing what we're going to do is the public are going to see we're going to welcome you in. So yes, yes, your critiques are valid. We all need to change. We should, we should fix this. Um, give you an office and a job to do this professionally, knowing full well that exactly the, the kind of rubber band reaction that, that you're describing will end up happening. That eventually all of the steam from this, you know, all of the kind of like all of the gasoline that fueled the potential of this kind of dissident activity burns out the second that you're kind of you know sitting at sitting at the uh, at the table with with everybody else you know um and I think it was genius and yeah and within a couple of months um genius on their part like within a couple of months the dissidents just kind of dissipated you know the 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 conversation just kind of disappeared a little bit because they'd been kind of uh, absorbed and 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 yeah it's a it's a, a we, we, I feel like we could maybe talk about this too much, and I feel like we're getting out of the optimistic side that I know Holly wants to pursue. So. Well, I mean, we've just we've taken two hours of your time, <laughs> and so we should probably wrap it up. But at one at one thing that we haven't covered yet, and I feel like is a pretty big one, is this concept of acid communism. Yeah. Yes. We should talk about that. I mean, you should talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> can you define that and then yeah just blow us away yeah, gosh, um uh, take us on a trip man <laughs> in a way it does lead on from that point i guess because it's like that um I mean, it's at least just to, to 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 hold that the end of that conversation on the on the on the dissidents. I guess that's that's again that negation of negation. Like you know, well, you you want private property, well, you can rent property, or you want dissidents, well, you can you can have like a, a state controlled dissidents. Um, and it's uh, that's in a way, I think it's like that's the communism as a, as a as a idea has kind of become sort of lumped into that kind of critique. Like, well, what's communism? Well, communism is like where it's just like, yeah, it's it's state ownership of the market or something. Well, it's, you know, it's nationalization. It's it's planned economy, um, which I guess, because I guess that was mentioned before, right? the, the, the Soviet Union's idea of red plenty is essentially like the, 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 the hope that they could do capitalism better than capitalism could. Um, and it's like, I think acid communism in a way for Mark, it's, it's, it's worth saying that he, it's never really defined and I think that what was important about that phrase for Mark more than anything was that it was a provocation, but it was precisely to, um, you know, to take the ideas of communism um, as they sort of were originally intended. And rather than sort of focus on that bleak post, the post fall of the wall um, defeat uh, kind of reaffirmed the, the the issues of consciousness that were kind of that actually outlasted that moment, right? That, that you have the um, and kind of negate the the melancholy of that moment. I guess is another thing mm. because uh, well, when talking about hauntology, the Simon Reynolds I think is initially the one that borrowed that term from Jacques Derrida and his book Spectres of Marx, which is kind of making that same point that you know that communism capital C quote unquote whatever state you know Soviet communism was eradicated but the idea of communism lives on and that sort of sounds a bit like uh sort of a, a kind of hollow positivity but it's the cultural impact of that process that's actually really interesting and maybe there's arguments to be made that um you know I guess that hauntology in a way was was as, as Simon and Mark used it, it, was a way to take that same argument and apply it to rave. So rave being that huge yeah. explosion of collectivity in the 90s that dies off. But the idea of rave continues to kind of haunt us as this like great potential that didn't quite, mm. you know, bear the fruit that, that was promised. And I guess as communism, as I understand it, is like a way to understand the impact of that kind of... Um, I suppose, defeat without getting tied up in the melancholy of it all by sort of affirming the ways that that idea has continued to, you know, percolate throughout culture, especially, I think, um, and the ways that it could do again. And I guess, yeah, that was a point that you brought up earlier about regarding like the, 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 the example of the Beatles being like their most sort of radical when they didn't have to worry about working anymore. And I guess there's yeah. maybe like, one thing that I always think about is that like how that, how the Beatles is kind of like this cultural entity have been sort of normalized um, kind of makes them seem like this one off, but yeah, in a way it's like, I think they're often like the, the, sort of pound for pound. The Beatles are often con, for, con 
compared to like One Direction, for instance, at least that initial sort of Beatlemania huge phase. <laughs> so yeah, I guess the point that I always think about is like, what would One Direction look like if they had radical politics? Um, mm-hmm. Like what if that kind of, um, you know, a song like, uh, I think Mark uses the example of I'm Only Sleeping as being this like, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I was going to say no pun intended, but that kind of sleeper hit for like bringing in like a <laughs> like a, a post work politics, a world without work, yeah. sort of in that dreamy Sunday afternoon yeah. vibe. And what's the kind of One Direction equivalent of that? Why isn't that kind of a possible thing? I guess you can. I've, I've thought about this way too much, and it's like Zayn Malik was maybe like this this like free radical that kind of broke off from them first, and maybe had the potential to like be this outsider like this 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 flipped positive uh, flipped pop cultural figure that kind of found this way into the underground and there was like a weird tension there but it's as if that there was that that kind of felt almost reminiscent of that much romanticized moment of like you know the breakup of the beatles and them all going off and doing their own thing um and maybe that the example doesn't line up that accurately, but you know, it, it's as if to say, you know, it's like a what if. There's, is there a sort of alternative history thing we can do where we can see those potentials? And I guess the question is, why aren't those potentials here now? What is it exactly that's changed that that kind of entity that is One Direction has a very different cultural impact than the Beatles did? What's missing that you know that the that what what kind of what is what is the psychedelic thing that's missing there? And I guess that's the another the main important thing to, to suggest with a with psychedelia for Marcus. I think it's a term that he uses very literally, um, yeah. being like you know psychedelia in meaning you know, to to make manifest what is in the mind. Yeah, and that's yeah. essentially like Karl Marx's position, like he the, the, the sort of phrase that's chiseled onto his tombstone. That's you know the, the point isn't to inter- interpret the world but to change it. That's essentially, I think, a psychedelic notion. Yeah, it's funny that honestly, we, we watched. There was I forget what the what the event was, but it was one of Mark's last public lectures at some kind of a collective or co-op, in which he described or talked about the Acids communist book that he was working on. Um, and there was a whole section in which he was talking about how, which we've actually used or brought up in previous conversations with people on this podcast series um, where he talks about how, you know, the expectation at the time was for the Beatles to become more successful and more like intrepid, mm-hmm. you know, that like, that was like the psychedelia that like, actually, you know, you wanted these people from where you were from to go and take drugs and like go on a trip and take you with them. Yeah. You know? um, and that, that, and in a sense, the, the, the counterpoint to that, I think, which is more contemporary is that the exact opposite is that you kind of now uh, pop star because of this kind of cult of the individual and cult, and also like the, the pretense of everybody uh, hypothetically being in a kind of democratized um, individualized kind of economic relationship with one another. Um, the idea now is that you want your pop stars to be just like you in exactly the state that you're in right now. Right. So like everything becomes like Billie Eilish, like is singing you personal lullabies. And by the way, like she makes all that stuff in her bedroom, just like the bedroom you have, you know, it's, it's all very much like trying to like comfort or set or, or comfort you 
um, uh, and not produce something psychedelic and, and remarkable. In fact, it's it's all about like it's very mundane and, and banal in that way. Um, and the other thing I think I mentioned on top of that, I mean, if you're talking about One Direction as an example, the point is is that we don't know if the people writing One Direction's music. Uh, we probably wouldn't know if they did go on some trip and make insane music, uh, insane music after that. The point being is that, you know, One Direction and, and that kind of factory model of of popular music production it couldn't be further away from the level of, of talent uh, and ingenuity that, that, you know, people of the Beatles generation, like, you know, where they actually played the instruments and wrote the songs and not to sound like a, like a dated rockist or something, but I do think it's an, an important distinction to yeah. make, right? It's like, you, you you can't like it would be very difficult well, someone was telling me that they were like the other day they were like madonna's new songs really suck and i was like yeah that's because she doesn't write her own yeah, material it's because like, patrick song. leonard yeah. she can't afford patrick leonard anymore or whatever like, the <laughs> songs you love yeah, like yeah. she wrote some of the lyrics which is cool and she brings them to life but you're actually in love with the music of patrick leonard <laughs> exactly and, and so that, i think that which is also for me i mean like I've spent, this is, this is totally out of scope and I might even, I might even cut it because it's, it's totally out of scope for what you're describing. But like, (laughs) but like, I'm personally really fascinated about like, like not even counterfactual readings of pop cultural history of the 20th century, but the fact that most common pop cultural history of the 20th century is kind of a a fabrication Mm. where like, like when, cause the point is, is that you, the, once you start looking at the credits of who wrote what, you get this totally different and actually I think very optimistic and wonderful view of what the 20th century actually was, right? Like, so you mentioned like Patrick Leonard and Madonna, for example, um, bring up like there's, you know, for example, most like cock rock uh, metal songs were written by a gay man um, who like in terms of like total records sold has sold more records than like pretty much anyone. What's his name? I forget his name. Uh, He's amazing. Yeah. Also the fact that like, you know, Michael Jackson's thriller was co-written between Quincy Jones and uh, Rod Temperton, who's like a awkward white dude from Blackpool, Mm. you know, who wrote the lyric, who wrote the rap to thriller in the cab on the way to the studio, like to that level of detail. And there's an insane demos where it's like, Quincy and this random dude Rod, like well, it's so great sketching. He's, he's singing because he's singing it because he's kind of writing the lead line. And what's the song? Is it Rock with Me? Rock with you. Oh, yeah, and he can't sing. Yeah. Like he's a terrible <laughs> singer, and he's like pretty much out of tune the whole time. But you can hear the song, and you can hear how important each person is to that process. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Th- without Michael Jackson singing it and completing the line and like finishing the lyrics, you know, it never would have been a thing, but also it's just just like this beautiful collaboration. Well, totally. But, but, but also because of this March of like, you know, kind of deceptive promotional practices or the necessity of kind of deceiving things or, or, or fabricating the way things actually happen, we don't get this rich picture of like actually what the music industry was, right. Which is, I mean, we use the analogy quite often of like, it's like the Formula One team that needs the remarkable Formula One driver in order to navigate navigate and kind of perform this powerful instrument that has been constructed by these teams of interdependent people, you know? And like, I love those stories because it's more rich and more telling actually of like the kind of combinations that are necessary to produce remarkable, strange things, yeah. you know? Um, but when you get to like the One Direction model or whatever, I mean, there are examples. I think that like... Uh, uh, Oh, I always forget their name. Oh God, why do I always forget their name? Oh, Brockhampton. Brockhampton. Oh, damn! I didn't yes. know that. 
boy band. But they kind of, no, but they did, they, they adopted, I mean, like they met on, this is allegedly the Genesis story. I mean, there's always something else, but like, <laughs> but the, the, they met on a, <clears throat> on the Kanye forum and the, the, the whole thing is like a collective and like they have this boy band property in a sense where like you follow Brockhampton, but people have favorites, you know, hmm. it's like, Oh, I love it when Jimmy's in this video, you know, like, <laughs> like it's very boy bandy in that way, but they kind of play the collective in that sense. And like, they're all ridiculously talented. Of course, odd future is also quite similar, mm. right? Like the odd future group is like, they're all ridiculously talented. Like, like just it's, it's wrong how talented they all are, you know? And they're like, Oh yeah. And then my friend here just directed a video and he's just brilliant, you know? Uh, but like, but, but you know, these kind of configurations are, for me, like have, I attribute way more optimism to them because again, you can kind of see how the sausage is made and you see the potential for transformation there where you're like, wow, like if this group of 12 people, all of a sudden started seeing some money so that again, that they can simulate these kind of post-work conditions because they have kind of money in the bank. Like, I wonder what they're going to come up with as they mature and as they, you know, as, as they start like light, light bulbs start going off for them everywhere, yeah. you know? Um, but I guess the, but that's one of the great, yeah. yeah, please okay, yeah well, I was, was going to say, cause I guess part of the, the reason for sort of introducing that counterfactual in a way is that I guess, yeah, it's precisely as you, as you're saying. And I think that's the, the one thing I kind of wanted to emphasize is that I think in his own way, Mark fits into that kind of trajectory. Um, I remember being on the dissensus forum that Mark set up with, um, uh, I think, well, um, Wobot was the blog name. I can't remember. It's, it's also a Matthew, but I can't remember his surname now. Um, yeah. Which no, I'll, yeah, yeah. have to figure that out. Um, anyway, the, but on that forum, I think there was, a, there was a conversation actually quite recently where people were sort of reflecting on Mark and remembering Mark and, Talking about how you know, people, the thing that people don't realize is sort of in in seeing Mark's kind of clandestine online persona is that he wanted to be a pop star, and they also told this story <laughs> like he like he owned back in the eighties or nineties he owned a chain like he was sort of like this like um like Flavor Flav <laughs> persona or something wandering around Norwich like. But he, but he had that kind of like ostentatious streak. Like he wanted to be, if not, be a, you know, I mean, because he was initially in like a a bunch of bands in the in the nineteen eighties, like D Generation, and and maybe the pop career didn't yeah. work out. But Mark wanted to be like the pop academic, and I think in a way it's yeah. like he, in a way, is like the one example of what a twenty first century pop star could look like, if not musically, but something yeah. else. Like he's the the CCIU kind of become. Uh, sort of very similar and it's, it's like there's something about the context which they're in that means that they're read a certain way that's kind of contrary to how they initially were set up like there's a lot of the ccu stuff is built around the uh the sort of numerology and having demons and things and it's kind of thrown in with like strange occultism and like edgy cyberpunk stuff but one of the main um inspirations which has kind of maybe been spoiled in 2020, but one of the main inspirations for that kind of thinking and cultural production was the Marvel universe. They, they wanted to have like these yeah. Yeah. concepts that represented like certain, the, the, these theories about capitalism and time and whatever else. And they wanted to give them avatars that were yeah equivalent to a comic book universe. Um, and I think that that's like, the, yeah. that's kind of right. I think Urbanomic at the moment are about to put out a, a comic book by Resident Negristani kind of in tribute to that influence. That's kind of been, maybe ruined by nerd culture to some extent, but like it's, it's, I think it's like an important part of that same 
like I agree with you in, in, in talking about getting so in, embedded in the in the history of those uh, of, of these different bands and how they came together and the strangeness of how One Direction are kind of like like if the Beatles are these four lads that met at a garden fate, One Direction is somehow equivalent because they're four lads that met at a talent competition and that's somehow like relatable. <laughs> but like th- those kind of machinations are like not really that different. Like the, the CCIU was a bunch of students that met at the pub in Leamington Spa and then made a website yeah. and kind of like, all you know, all these bloggers met on forums and kind of like the theoretical equivalent of Brockhampton. Like those Sims yep. stories can be told. And I think telling mm. them in those, like explaining them in those terms is, is partly like, that's part of the acid communism thing. I think that communism isn't just this yeah. cold academic thing that people argue about at conferences like the the acidic psychedelic part of it is having the sort of experiencing the joy of telling those kinds of stories and 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 how imaginative and and inspiring it is that you can talk about like because people do it in philosophy and you kind of think that's partly why a lot of philosophy conversations online especially on twitter are easily memified and people talk about like the fact that hegel and schelling (laughs) shared a dormitory at university in germany in the 19th century and but talk about it in a way like they are like yeah like like, like it, was a, it was a tiktok house for german idealism or something um, <laughs> that's amazing like, i think that, that, that thinking about these things in that way like updating these relationships to you know not 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 shying away from that because it's super capitalist and and, and easy to be cynical about but actually like what that injects into our thinking about politics and philosophy is and yeah, it's like totally. it's super yeah. generative. Yeah, totally. Like just having the boss to be like a little bit ostentatious too, or like, I mean, we were talking to Simon yesterday about like testing in prod, which is this kind of developer thesis where it's like it's basically like testing in production. So it's like you you publish the code and then you figure it out, you know, and it's like everything is about like forward motion and like putting something out there and not feeling the burden of history. Mm. And like by all means, like having a bit of swagger even if you don't take yourself too seriously or whatever, but like having the confidence exactly because to understand. Because functionally when you're developing software that actually works better yeah. than trying to like develop the perfect product because there will always be issues along the way. So it actually is something that like makes sense in that that field specifically, but then it's kind of like translated to every other aspect of life. Yeah, yeah, totally. It was just like, yeah, I mean like you, you know, I, I mean I, I have this like a few times with, I know like just chatting to people of like, like kind of knowing your own power in a way mm. as cheesy and motivational as that sounds, but it's like, you know, that's part of this idea. I mean, when I think about like acid communism or any of these kind of like psychedelic ideas, it's just kind of like, there's something very, uh, there's something very inspiring to this idea of being like, no, no, no. Like I have a vision, you know, like I want to manifest and manifest this thing in the world. And <clears throat> it's not necessarily, you know, cause it can be, it can become so easy to like, talk yourself out of doing stuff yeah you know well especially in left-leaning circles <clears throat> i mean we didn't yeah. talk about the vampire's castle and maybe that's too much to get into now maybe that's something the listeners can yeah well, <laughs> we dodged that bullet have, can we, research yeah. on their own <laughs> but there is this i've heard the phrase that you've used before tall poppy syndrome oh, yeah, like totally, this totally. idea of like if you kind of stick your neck out there then it can get chopped mm. off or whatever yeah i mean and there's also we also didn't get to talk about depression i mean like i i I suffer from depression. Uh, I often wonder if part of the reason why I gravitate towards Mark's work is that it like, 
it so like accurately maps the cartography of like extreme highs and extreme lows. Yes. <laughs> you're like you're like okay, like you know, like yeah, like like the depths of like you know, there were there is no future and uh, you know everything's terrible and a pastiche and we're doomed to repeat repeat the past. You're like okay, been there, and then it's like you know, then you're up and you're like, oh yeah, like I can change the world. I can walk through walls right now. You know, this kind of like, <laughs> the acid part. <laughs> yeah. This kind of like psychedelic, like forward motion thing. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, we didn't, we didn't get to talk about that either, but the thing that's also kind of a reality for, for many people, many people on the left where it's like, it does become this very cerebral exercise and it becomes oftentimes a battle with oneself more so than a battle with the outside world. You know, th- or those two things are like, it's quite difficult to transcend from one to the other. Um, and so, yeah, so I think like this idea of like, yeah, like, I don't know that relieving people of, of this pressure, like this, this push for like a, a kind of psychedelic perspective re- simultaneously, like relieves people of a degree of pressure and also creates the expectation that you do bigger stuff, which is kind of like a great combination, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's like thinking about all those things is, is partly like, um, it's part of this tension that's also in Mark's work, right? That, like, he's he's kind of an ardent humanist in a lot of ways, but also kind of like an inhumanist in the sense of like the, the, the human is not an, is not a complete category. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I think if if there's a way to very briefly kind of pull those things together, I think it's like that. Yeah, Mark was had that confidence to be human, which again sounds a bit wanky, but. Like there's there's something it's there's an honesty there. Like I think in 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 many ways, at least I know this was the case for me too. That it was it was initially Mark's writings on depression that actually made me really connect with what he was doing. But then it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Con- ex- expanding out from that to sort of say, um, like this is sort of the Spinozist thing that Mark has in a lot of his writing that it's we, we can identify that this sort of. Yeah, the, the the cultural pastiche and the, and the and the striving for the new is very much something that we can all experience individually. But then look at capitalism, and capitalism is no different as a system. We, we we talk about depressions, and then in 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 ourselves as individuals, and then we talk about recessions for capitalism as if they like are those two things not in some way correlative, um, and that the way that we can better think about our own depressions allows us to maybe have a more um, kind of excavate our own autonomy within this kind of overarching structure that's supposedly going on above us that we have no control over. That's the the purpose of these big banks, but we kind of are affected. And when we can, if there's a way to, that's something that I think a lot of the CCIU crowd has in common. And I think that, um, I mean, this is reading a reading group around Reza Negrostani's Cyclonopedia. And that's the one thing that kind of kept coming up in, in talking about that book. That's like every point Reza's kind of, smashing apart these different scales and perspectives like everything's just mm-hmm. leveled where you can talk about um your own kind of possession by capitalism and, and at, at the same time you can talk about how the world has been possessed by capitalism and that interscalar nature um is kind of precisely what's needed that's kind of the psychedelic aspect that you can even even depression can be thought about psychedelically um yep. and yeah kind of spread over things and and it's it's yeah it's a very difficult position to hold with any consistency I think because it is kind of so mind-boggling but um, I think that like yeah again the vampires cast is kind of a very similar example of, of Mark kind of lashing out in a way uh, maybe understandably considering how things have 
been going. But then it's the point that I always think to make with that essay and because the, the, the kind of conversation around it is unending despite nearly being you know, over, I can't even remember how long it was, nearly a decade ago. But um, it's the fact that what Mark went on to do afterwards, like he had that kind of what many people interpreted to be a kind of reactionary, petulant screed against a culture. Mm-hmm. But his own response to that afterwards was to build up this sense of this concept of consciousness raising, which was huge for us in communism. That's not just about um, pointing at the left and saying, this is what you're doing wrong, but then actually leading by example and sort of saying, well, okay, maybe that was a, that was a bad move on my part, but here's how I'm, here's how I'm, you know, actually putting my money where my mouth is and doing something different. Mm. And that's part of Mark's story that often gets lost under that kind of avalanche that it was that essay. But it's this, yeah. it's it's that same thing again, right? It's always that punk and post-punk relationship that Mark was always just constantly <laughs> wrestling with, that 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 striving for newness and having that initial burst of energy and then really, you know, thinking what could happen afterwards. And in a lot of ways, I think that his whole career and, 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 and his whole life and, and even the, the, the kind of really tragic way that it ended is is not to, doesn't undermine any of that work, but kind of shows how difficult it is and how high the stakes are and how we can be, you know, it's, 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 I guess that's part of the thing to say about those peaks and troughs. It's, it's, it becomes innately philosophical because you, you, you bring it all together under some heading and what you've got is the human condition and how that's kind of manipulated by these various different machinations that go on around us, whether that's cultural or economic or the socioeconomic, whatever else, that our, our sort of striving to be vigilant about how we're caught up in those forces and processes, those pulsions that we don't have control over, um, is is in a way all that we can do. But there's a great deal of um, sort of life affirming um, energy to be drawn from that. And I guess it's like not you know you get get not you get knocked down, you get back up again, you tear it up and you start again. And it's just like having keeping up that pressure is always really important, and it's not easy. And no one would. I think Mark is, it was especially make that point that it's definitely not, but he did it anyway. And I think that's kind of what's so inspiring about his legacy in that respect. That was actually a really beautiful conclusion and like summary yeah, <laughs> to, to end on. Thank you. Particularly with the Chumbawamba quote. Yeah, <laughs> right, it's yeah. like perfect. <laughs> I heard the I said it, it was like, no. <laughs> like, it's so wow. beautiful. Gotta, gotta, gotta bring up Chumbawamba. <laughs> oh, no. Well, well, we have one question that we do always ask our guests sure. that we hope that you will entertain us with. Um, what does interdependence mean to you? I think it, it what interdependence means for me is a, a line that my friend Natasha Eves once said at a uh, an event we ran in Dalston a couple of years ago, which is solidarity without similarity. Um, okay. That's like my favorite mm. phrase anyone's ever said ever, I think. And that's um, good. Yeah, interdependence is about that. <laughs> That's really good. Wow, that's good. great. What, who, who said it to you? Natasha um, Eves. Natasha yeah. Eves. Okay, shout out to Natasha as well. <laughs> yeah, wow. That, yeah, that's good. That's really punchy. Yeah, that one will be sticking around. Yeah, yeah that's also, you You broke the record for the fastest completion of that. Game. True. Yeah. And you nailed it. So, yeah, that's pretty. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Two and a half hours of various rambles. It had to have some <laughs> 
Well, yeah. Hey, Matt, it's been really lovely. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And um, thank you for being so generous with your time yeah, and your totally. thoughts, and, and also for and this- giving us and two books. <laughs> exactly, not one, but two books. Well, no, for having um, me. I mean, it's 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 genuinely an honor, and it's a pleasure to chat to you both. I've been a fan for a long time, so you know, it's yeah, it's great. Happy to have to chat for for yeah any amount of time it's been wicked oh thanks that's really nice to hear yeah i would definitely recommend to the listeners to um check out both of your books but especially the post-capitalist desire because i just think it's such an interesting format this collection of essays the way that you that you've put it together and one thing that i would suggest it's something that i didn't do but i would if i was to redo it (laughs) this is what i would do is to try to maybe read some of the um syllabus material in advance first because sometimes I felt like I was like you know in in college when you would like show up to class but you haven't done the reading yeah. <laughs> that's how I felt for, for part of it I'm like okay I need to Sister, go back like Protestant guilt you're like <laughs> I need to you do aren't this. technically in the class you didn't actually have to do the reading yeah <laughs> yeah no but it's a really interesting uh yeah format you know but uh, uh but genuinely appreciate it also um you know you're blogging at xenogothic.net xenogothic.com dot com yeah. damn wow hey cool Congrats. <laughs> um, well, we'll we'll put we'll put yeah I guess, <laughs> moving on up <laughs> um, uh we'll put we'll put all the all the links there um and then yeah so matt Thanks so much for, for hanging out with us. I hope we get to see you in real life once this nightmare is over. I hope we all get jabbed soon. Um, and well, he will be jabbed first, being in the UK. Yeah, because we're everybody else, apparently. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see what happens to you guys Yeah, first. we'll see what happens to you first. You get to be the lab rats. That's I'll awesome. Stuff um, of all the mutations that follow, sure. That's not going to no, no, no. We're very pro Cool. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Have a good night. Yeah, cheers. Ciao.